0: They're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now. And if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some meat eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger ready to roll and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. i just have Yanni use his, then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls get calls that are made in the usa and get calls that'll get them close find yours at PhelpsGameCalls.com today this is the meat eater podcast coming at you shirtless severely bug bitten and in my case underwearless the meat eater podcast you can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play store. Know where you stand with OnX. Okay,
1: Carl, uh, Carl Malcolm set the scene for us here. What's going on? Well, we are here uh, at Oryx Camp 2020. We're in south-central New Mexico, at a camping spot that I've come to be, uh, very familiar with and fond of over a, a number of years now. I've probably been camping in and around this particular spot for close to a decade of hunting a variety of species. And over the course of those hunts, I have encountered oryx in this general area on a number of occasions. So we're here just, just outside the periphery of the White Sands Missile Range in south-central New Mexico, which is the place you want to be if you're looking for the wily and elusive African Oryx. I
0: think that you might have even expressed at one point here that you intimated that you may have even seen one very near where we're at right now.
1: If you were to take a straight-line distance from where our keisters are on these seats right now, I have seen an Oryx... No more than three hundred yards from oh, where we're sitting right now, man. Right, in shooting range.
0: Uh, Tom Baudet's here. <laughs> <laughs> Howdy, Steve. <laughs> Mike rules on the show before, and people wrote in. The, a guy wrote, uh, Mike saw a comment where he said, "Um, man, that guy sounds just like Tom Baudet." Hit it, hit it, Mike. Yeah, like I said,
2: dude sounds just like Tom Baudet. So do a Tom Baudet line. This is Tom Baudet from Motel Six, <laughs> and we'll leave the light on for you. <laughs> That's pretty good, man. <laughs> nice job I really respect Tom Baudet, so I really took that as a compliment <laughs> <laughs> yeah Mike is actually like a Tom Baudet fan I, that, I think that'd be fair yeah he's got a great backstory Homer Alaska and it's tied in with the, the singer Jewel what was been- her tune she had like one super famous tune didn't she
1: she had, uh, she had a bunch of good ones man. Yeah. and you're a Michigan guy she uh, she did some of her training at that interlocking fine arts camp well, and that's... I've been there. I saw Gordon Lightfoot there oh, nice. first time I saw Gordon Lightfoot.
2: But the the Interlocking Camp is part of the whole story about Tom Baudet and Jewel and the connection. Oh, really? Yeah, Homer, Alaska, is the hometown of. well, I, Tom Baudet's not from Homer, I don't think. But but uh, he he moved up there, right?
0: And then they had a fundraiser to send this Jewel individual to Interlocking to Interlock
1: to and, and Tom Baudet donated money toward it. Correct. I got one Jewel thing, one Jewel line that's rolling around in my head. I'm pretty sure it's that "Who will save your soul." That was her big hit. Yeah, yeah. That's the. I, I can't remember the name of the song, but hearing her little her voice kind of cracking a little bit as she sings that. I mean, I I totally had a Jewel crush going on for sure. Did she really? Yeah, she. You know, she had that like in, imperfection of that one crooked tooth on the up on her top. Top shelf. Don't remember. She had a trademark. Yeah, it was like kind of like Cindy Crawford. She had that birthmark, right? Yeah, my wife's got one snaggle tooth. Does she? Yeah. So I found that I found that the fact that she wasn't just like this perfectly polished. Don't be staring at my wife. I'm not talking about your wife. I'm talking about Jewel. <laughs> Start talking about my wife's snaggle tooth. No, I'm talking about Jewel. <laughs> but I like the fact that, you know, she's like in the in the spotlight of Hollywood and she's just out there. I mean, she's a beautiful woman, of course, and very talented. And I always found it appealing that she had this imperfection that she was not sufficiently vain to want to pursue, like, a correction. You know, I saw that as just, like, a level of authenticity that I found to be very attractive. She's a big Jewel fan, huh? Yeah, for sure, man. I thought, yeah, I loved the music. I loved her voice. I thought she was just a cool person. And the Alaska thing, too. You know, I'd never been to Alaska at that point in my life, but I was just like, man, Shania Twain, too. Same kind of thing, like. This woman from the rugged north who's just beautiful and has an incredible voice and so talented and strong. She's a northerner? Yeah.
2: Right? Yeah. Shania's out of Alaska too. Oh, no, no. She's, she's Canadian.
1: Oh, Canadian. Okay. But like that rugged northern thing. Is Not even Canadian. American. That's all right. No.
0: Really? Yeah. My buddy Ronnie was all excited because Shania Twain has the same kind of dog he has. Okay. An Italian Bracco. I wonder if she hunts. Or, it. as pretentious people would say, a bracco italiano. Yeah.
3: Uh Jeremy. Can you say where you are. You allowed to say where you work? Yeah, absolutely. Hit it. I work for the National Wildlife Federation. I'm the regional connectivity coordinator.
0: Oh yeah, because it's not like the government where you gotta be all sly about where you work right, all the time right. you don't want to
2: get in trouble. Oh,
3: no, I'm happy. I'm happy not to right, talk Mike. about it.
2: Yeah, that's that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I am a conservation professional, <laughs> not currently representing any organization <laughs> on this podcast. Yeah, it's Jeremy
3: Romero. Correct. Yeah. Um, and you're the New Mexico... I, well I work out of New Mexico but I represent, you know, a regional level. I, I, I work gotcha. for the National Wildlife Federation out of the Rocky Mountain Regional Center. So we have quite a few states that I that I work to promote and protect wildlife corridors and connectivity.
0: Gotcha. Which is a hot thing in, in conservation right now. Yeah,
3: absolutely. You know, as as we know, wildlife move across multiple jurisdictions and so when you're gonna Sit down and really protect and prioritize these efforts. You really need to bring a robust group of stakeholders to the to the table, and that's something that's that's a pretty hot topic. And we've been pretty successful in doing here in the landscape.
0: Great, and then um, Seth, yep, the flip flop no longer flesher, who's fallen incredibly behind.
4: Yeah, it's I blame it on COVID.
0: <laughs> yeah, when you flesh it's beavers at majors. the office, yeah, and COVID comes, beaver fleshing grinds to a halt.
4: Yep. Which I could do in my garage, but it's just... It's funner to do it at work. Hot and... Yeah, I like when people are complaining about it in the office. You know,
0: uh, I recently played Teen Wolf for my kids. Like, when we have movie night, I tend to... When we have movie night, I want to, like... They want to pick, but I'm always like, well, I'll pick. So I pick movies that I remember from being, like, in high school, even though they're in pre and elementary... Pre-elementary and elementary, yeah. But somehow I don't line it up right. So I'll be like, "Oh, I remember a movie when I was young, <laughs> <laughs> but it has some scenes in it. The that, that, uh you know, it's got some scenes in it. Yep. And while watching Teen Wolf, the this is the original Teen Wolf, Michael J. Fox. You know about this movie?
4: I don't. I don't think it's. I don't think it's all the original.
0: Do you know the premise? It's a dude. He's, he's, he, like, he turns into a werewolf. Yeah, yeah. And then he gets like people like him. He's a dork, but then he's a werewolf. Yes. And uh, he's real good at basketball. There's a girl he really. There's a girl that like the neighborhood girl, likes him, but he don't like her. There's a girl he really likes, but she's too good for him. He turns into a, a werewolf. Gets super good at basketball. The mean girl likes him. Then he like self discovers. Right. Yep. in the end he winds up with the neighborhood girl. Mm-hmm. Um, watching it, I was thinking that we could do that same movie call it The Flip-Flop Flesher, where it's like you're just a normal dude, and you, you become The Flip-Flop Flesher and think you're cool as shit, right? Yep. Because <laughs> there's a big part of Team Wolf where Michael J. Fox, he can win all the games. He doesn't even need his teammates, but his teammates start getting bummed out. So then in the end, they play the championship, and he plays it. And he doesn't turn into the werewolf to win the championship. Just, and they plays just do it no through regular old teamwork.
4: So what would I win? Just win it it at flashing, like Fleshing
0: contest or something. Just a top lot, and you'd come in just as you, and not the flip flop flasher. You're <laughs> like, you'd be like, I'm flashing this one as Seth, bro. Yep. Yeah. Um, I like it. Uh, explain White Sand
1: Missile Range in greater detail. Who wants to take that one? We could probably tag team in a little bit. I mean, we've been doing a little bit of homework. Um, so it's, a, it's an interesting story, man. It is an interesting story. So the White Sands Missile Range is this massive chunk of country about in the in the neighborhood of 2 million acres. It's 130 south. miles by, what did we figure
4: out? You did the math. 120 northwest, or north-south. North south. About 120. And east to west was roughly 40, I think. Yeah, so it's, it's I can a, tell you it takes a long ass time to even drive around part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: especially if you're like a midwesterner by birth and you get out here and just see like how vast the expanse is. And that's kind of the point. So when the Department of Defense was trying to figure out places to do things like test missiles, detonate the first nuclear bomb. Atomic. Um, atomic bomb, thanks. They were looking for places where there weren't a lot of people. I can't tell you the difference between those two things. Real, I, I think they eloquently. may be the same thing, but I'm not sufficiently...
0: No, I don't think that they are, man. Isn't it like a fission-fusion kind of thing?
1: Yeah, me. I'm sure there'll be some physicist who weighs in on this, and we can we can see what they have to say. I remember in 10th grade, I uh, was in
0: science class. I can't remember what grade I was in. But I remember losing a lot of faith in my teacher, because I was like, is it possible that you could, hit, you could be splitting firewood And hit it just right. That you split an atom. And split an atom and cause an atomic explosion. And looking back on it, they were not able to answer
1: that question. I think it's a thoughtful question.
0: And I now understand that you, no matter
1: how much firewood you split. You're not going to split an atom. You will not split an atom. Yeah. I I don't know, man. Like if you were to say, you know, drop a nuclear bomb and drop an atomic bomb. In my mind. It's different. It's different. So that's something I'll take at face value. So they're looking for a place where they have enough open country to be able to do some of this stuff that would be real dangerous if you have a bunch of people in proximity. And uh, so when it comes to you know the history of things like testing atomic bombs, a lot of that work happened in places like the Arizona Strip, places like the Trinity Site, which is not terribly far from where we are right now, the Trinity Site being the place where they detonated the first of those bombs. And so the White Sands Missile Range is an area where they're there are all manners of testing of missiles, aircraft, um, and all kinds of other stuff that the, the general public, including myself, probably has no idea about. But it's a vast chunk of DOD country, and it's also the site of the original introduction of the African oryx, which is the species we've been hunting. Let's back
0: up one step because I just wanted to tell people, if you want to read a really fascinating story uh, about American history and warfare... The story of the Manhattan Project leading up to the Trinity site test Mm -hmm. and the level of secrecy and manipulation that had to go into doing a surface test of an atomic weapon while having no one know that you just did that. even people that were in the military in the area at the time thought, I think that they thought it was a munitions train exploded or something like that. They had some cover story like they touched off an atomic bomb, like the same bomb they used to destroy what it was like little boy and big fat boy. Yeah. Anyways, the same bomb they used to destroy Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They touched off a version of it in New Mexico and kept... And it remained a secret that they had the
1: weapon. Yep. Yeah, and that spot... It was a different place back then. It was a different a different time for sure. And that, that spot where that occurred... So when I started with the Forest Service, I was down on the Lincoln National Forest where the headquarters is based in Alamogordo, New Mexico. And the regional office is up in Albuquerque. So I'd oftentimes be traveling between Alamogordo and Albuquerque. And there's a stretch of highway called Highway 380 that goes along the north side of the White Sands Missile Range. And there's very little... Um, human development along that highway. It's pretty open country. So along Highway 380, the route that I would take between Alamogordo and Albuquerque, um, you go along the north side of the White Sands Missile Range. And among the very few human developments along that stretch of highway is a rock shop. And the thing that the rock shop advertises on the side of the road most prominently is that they have Trinitite Mm -hmm. available for sale. And trinitite is this um, mildly radioactive glass that was created by the detonation of that first bomb test. So you can go out there and there's like fragments of this glass at the bomb site. And I've, I've never yet had the opportunity to do the tour, but I know a couple of times a year, um, the White Sands Missile Range offers public tours to go back and actually visit the Trinity site. Oh, but really? Yeah. Especially yeah, think,
3: on the anniversary, I believe. Is that
1: right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've I've heard that that you know the date's coming up, and it hasn't lined up to where I could come down and make it happen. And I feel like I've missed missed an opportunity a few times to do that. But um, that site is you know, as the crow flies, not terribly far from some of the spots we've been poking around looking for oryx. Do you understand why? Uh, what's the story
0: of how it came to be that they decided to cut some oryx loose in the White Sands Missile Range?
1: So. The history is that the state of New Mexico uh, back in the late 60s and early 70s in an effort to try to provide more big game hunting opportunity was trying to identify portions of the state that could potentially support other big game hunting opportunities but were essentially unfilled um, niches from a big game hunting perspective. Just too severe, con- the conditions. Yeah, and then and then essentially marry up the kind of ecological niche that was perceived to be available with a species that had the ability potentially to thrive in that portion of the landscape. So there was this kind of matchmaking going on and a lot of energy around the idea of trying to bring in exotic species to exist in portions of the state. And there's a handful of examples and uh, the oryx being one that they successfully introduced.
0: Like taking an African antelope suited to deserts.
1: Yep. Yep. And And then they took, the Barbary sheep. Yep. The Barbary was another. Which is in then...
0: North Africa, right? A
1: mountain animal yep. from North Africa. Yep. And then there were two different Ibex species, the Persian and the Siberian that they brought in. All
0: dr- These are all like drought tolerant species. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh. And they looked at some and decided against it as well. I think they looked at the kudu and the kudu was having some issues contracting diseases from cattle. So the kudu didn't work. And with the species that they did want to release, what I've read is that there's a federal law that prohibits the importation and release of exotic wildlife. And the way that the state worked around that was to bring them in and establish experimental populations and propagate offspring in captivity. And then they were able to release the offspring of those imported oryx, for example. And there's a spot kind of on the west side of the Missile Range, um, Red Rock where they were doing the initial captive breeding and propagation of those first 90 or so oryx that they brought out and released on the missile range. That's how many they cut loose? Was 90? Yeah, it was 90-ish. And, you know, guys, correct me if I'm wrong here. You know, I brushed up a little bit on this. 93. So, and it wasn't all at once. They were, like, adding them in kind of over time, supplementing the population. And then pretty quickly they got to be self-sustaining. And, you know, ecologically... One of the things that's cool about Oryx is that, you know, they're able to reproduce year round. So they're very productive. You know, a, a cow will conceive, carry the pregnancy, deliver the calf, raise the calf for some period of time, and then she'll cycle again. But they're not constrained by seasonality the way a lot of the ungulates that we're used to thinking about in North America are. When did they start? So they brought them in the 60s and 70s. Yep. They
0: explode in numbers on this giant missile range where there's was very limited hunting. And then at some point, someone must have gotten uneasy with what was going to happen because they didn't just let them overrun the whole damn
1: state. Yeah, the the history, I mean, initially the motivation for the whole program was to provide hunting opportunity. And the fact that they intentionally selected the White Sands Missile Range as the release site suggests to me that the intention was to have some hunting opportunity on White Sands Missile Range. And whether or not that's the case, I mean, I'm, I'm not super skookum on all the details here, but it's certainly the case that the, the original population became very well established on White Sands Missile Range and has provided a lot of hunting opportunity over the decades since. And to your point, the objective was to keep the population primarily contained to the White Sands Missile Range. Got you. So that's how we're here on what, what, in local vernacular, everybody calls the off-range oryx hunt.
0: Uh, can we back up a moment to your use of the word skookum?
1: Yeah. Uh, what's your what, 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 How do you define the skookum? So I would think of skookum as being like you are totally on point on a given to- topic. In Alaska,
0: particularly Southeast Alaska, mm-hmm.
1: um, that's where I think that word might come from maybe. Yeah, I'd be interested to know the history, but so don't. You should, check that. you should check that out, Seth, while you're sitting there. While you're sitting there with real bad cell phone service.
0: Um, means good. Skookum is good. Okay, he'd be like, "That's a Skookum rig for fishing." Someone's like, "Hey, should I try this?" Yeah, it's a Skookum rig. Okay, good rig. I don't know what the hell it means. I was just curious. Yeah, I've always... The, I've, only we, ever heard, I, I've, I've only ever heard it in Southeast Alaska. I've only ever heard it to mean good, so I took, took note when you just used skookum to mean like a good
1: understanding of. Yeah, like I think about it being like you're on point. So when it comes to nuclear versus atomic bombs, not I feel very not skookum. No like skookum. I, I'd want to learn a little bit more
2: about that. I looked that up. What'd you look up? Atomic versus nuclear bombs. It's different. Atomic bombs are nuclear weapons, but not all nuclear weapons are atomic bombs. Oh. Hydrogen bombs are thermonuclear weapons, which is a different category.
0: Do you remember when Oakley sunglasses used to advertise as thermonuclear protection? No. You don't remember that? Uh Uh-uh. Yeah, like dudes that liked Oakleys a lot. Like a certain type of guy in high school liked Oakleys a lot and would have Oakley stickers on his truck and whatnot. (laughs) And one of the stickers you'd put on your truck window would say, Oakley, thermonuclear protection, as though... The implication being that should whiskey whiskey three break out, uh, and you had your Oakleys on, you would not be blinded and would be able to see yourself um, shortly thereafter die of <laughs>
1: radiation poison. Radiation poison. Right. And, Current, couldn't, and couldn't you argue that the sun is like a form of thermonuclear? <laughs> oh, maybe that's what they measure. There you go. Oh, yeah, One know. thing on the on the Oakleys, you know, they had those stalls in the mall where you'd walk in and, yeah. and they were like all the rage. And in the Grand, the Grand Travers Mall in Northwest, Northwest Lower Peninsula, Michigan, I was like begging my mom to get a pair of those sweet shades when I was in late elementary school, like maybe fifth grade. And finally for my birthday, you know, she broke down. They were just ridiculously expensive oh, yeah. for our family budget. And uh, she broke down and bought me a pair. And I thought they were so cool. I could not wait for like recess and it didn't matter if it was raining out at recess I don't want to have those sunglasses on to like strut around the playground and show everybody my rad Oakleys I could name
0: off I could (laughs) name off the dudes in high school who had Oakleys
1: yeah I'm not proud elementary
0: high school I could name them off and they uh, they also had this they were the kids that got to have Nikes their moms would buy them Nikes they were the kids that got to have individually bagged Doritos in their lunch They were the kids that got to have where they put the cheese in one compartment and the crackers in the other compartment. What do you call those things? Oh, Lunchables. Yeah. They were the kinds of kids that had like Levi, actual Levi jeans, not tough skins and Wranglers. Yeah. They had Nike shoes, Doritos, like all kinds of store-bought shit in their lunch bag (laughs) and not like stuff their mom made, you know? Yeah. What about starter
2: jackets? Dude, I was was (laughs) going to go with starter
1: jackets, and the other one is not Nike's. The th- but okay, I want I want to back
2: up. I'll just- name them right now. Wait, hold, I don't want to give their last Go names.
5: Ahead.
1: Nate,
0: Stan, Steve. I could name all these dudes' oh, yeah. last names. no, I, I've got. A I few remember them still today. And they had Michael,
1: and they had those Michael Jackson jackets. Yeah, no, another thriller there came Kenny, out. Kenny, Chris, <laughs> Kenny, Chris, and George are three that come to my mind. But you know, the shades. Like the reason it's notable to me is it was such such a stretch because we had typically like not a bunch of the store bought lunch ingredients, for example. But the other thing besides starter jackets, it wasn't the Nikes. It was the Adidas Sambas. No. Yeah, dude. The no. Sambas. It, where I was. I'm just saying. Like, Sambas and starter jackets. That was... Those were the kids. Those... The girl versions of the guys I'm talking about had Reeboks. Okay.
0: We we also had probably slightly slightly different like cultural subtleties to our respect. Yeah, even though we're same state. Plus, I'm a little bit ahead of you. That's true. Let me, I'll tell you. Horrible, I'll tell you. I want to get back to talking about orcs. Much as <laughs> much the next guy, but I'll tell you a horrible story. Okay. So I was never allowed to have any kind of nice stuff. I thought we were poor, but it turns out my parents just weren't stupid. Like I grew up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I grew up thinking I was poor, even though we we're like absolutely not poor. You know, we had like boats. My parents drove new cars. We had a big, nice house. But I thought, as a young kid, I thought we were poor because I couldn't have stupid shit. But it was not because they couldn't get it. They just were annoyed by it. Like, we couldn't get, we wouldn't get, there's no way we we're going to get an Atari machine like to yeah. play video games. Oh, yeah. Like There's no way my parents were going to buy one of those. There's no way they were going to buy like a nice television. There's no way they're going to buy Levi's and Reeboks and whatnot. And I remember one time we went down to MC Sporting Goods and they had a pair of mismatched nike's in a box for like no money because one shoe the right one I can't remember the right or left one of them had red swoosh marks and one of them had dark burnt orange swoosh mark and it was a subtle difference but there was a difference and we could get them for like 20 bucks from mc sporting goods so here was my mom's find like if you really want to have a pair of Nuggets, I'll buy those ones for you. And I'm like, no one will notice. No one will notice. I wasn't in—I was in fifth or sixth grade. I wasn't at the schoolhouse five minutes.
4: Someone noticed.
0: Oh, Stan, Nate, Steve, yeah, <laughs> they picked up on it like flies on shit. They were just on it like they knew it. <laughs> That's brutal. And they were—they let you know. Oh. merciless. Did you
4: keep wearing them? I don't remember, that. man.
0: Probably not. I do remember there being like a little bit of a plan where my mom was going to try to darken up that other
3: stripe somehow. Yeah. Oh, it's horrible. Well, being a parent, do you find that you have some of those same tendencies with your family now? It depends why they want what they want.
0: But no, I'll buy them like good outdoor stuff.
3: So <laughs> if I don't you saw buy a box st-
0: of two two colored shoes, you wouldn't? Oh, I, I do a lot of stuff just to mess with them though. Like make them eat stuff they don't want. Just just I just do Yeah, I just do mean stuff to them just so they're like, I tell them, someday when you're in college, you tell them stories about how mean your dad was. You'll be glad I did this because you'll have a funny story. There you go. Uh, all right. So you're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome, kids.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Where were we? Oh, yeah. Oryx. Skook good. Scook them good. Skook, em good. Oh,
4: skook. skook em. Hold on.
1: Yeah. A skook em story about Oryx. Am I, am I
4: doing a S- good job of using it appropriately? S-K-O-O-K-U-M. You yep. got it. Yep. Strong, brave, or impressive?
0: Does it give the etymology of the word? You know what that means? Look up the etymology of etymology. Hmm.
4: What, you Not want, entomology. You want to just tell me?
0: Word history. Study of words. E- et- they, where et- they et- come from. Where how they, they come morph from. The time. etymology of the word. People would say, There's like, what's origin. the etymology of flip-flop flesher?" I'd say, well, he fleshes in flip-flops.
4: Mid-19th century. <laughs> Chinook Jorgen. Oh. Chinook Jar- jargon. jargon.
0: Chinook. Yeah, Northwest, Pacific Northwest. Cool. That's a tribe in the Pacific Northwest. Yep. Well, I f- I f- That's why the guy I know it from is Simshan. And they probably used to take big canoes and fight each other, if I had to guess, the Simshan and the Chinook. Oh, okay. Yeah, but he's Simshan, and he must, his, his people must have picked it up huh,
1: from the Chinook. Haida, yeah. Simshan. People should start using it more often. Skook them. You good and strong on a given topic. Okay. Impressive. Skook, the skookum story of the orcs. I oryx. feel semi-skookum on the history of oryx. Do you, you mind know? real
0: quick for people just to ease us back into the conversation about orcs, do you mind real quick laying out what one of these things looks like? Who wants to do that? Mike, you haven't said it. Tom Bodet. will now explain.
2: <laughs> oh, man, what does an oryx look like? Uh, Dig deep into your bio- biology training. Well, they are, in terms of size, like... A mature bull Oryx is roughly the size of a cow elk, I would say. Yeah. Uh, they are probably slightly shorter in their body, but deeper. Mm-hmm. Like when you look at one, their, their, their chest, particularly like if you come up the leg, it, they are very deep from the bottom of the chest to the top of their back. They kind of look like a, like a billboard. Yeah. You know? standing there um and they have really distinct markings so we we say that they have like a clown face they have a face that is is black angelic white right with with striking white alongside the black
0: yeah is their face mostly white or mostly black i'm trying to think of it now it's got more a little probably a little more white than black but what is the butterfly is that same same black or that's white the white.
1: butterfly is white oh white. okay it's yeah, like two triangles that kind of meet at the
2: middle of the face yeah i just scun one but i can't remember right that white wraps That's around, past and around for skin
3: makes its way up to its ears real yep. pretty
2: their uh their bodies are tan mostly tan in color their bellies are white but they have a black stripe that runs along their belly uh and then as far as headgear. They got big sweat socks on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They have big white socks, so black legs and then big white, uh, like a big white band, like a sock band. Reminds me of the old baseball
3: socks right. that you used to wear in Little League.
2: Yep. Yep. And they got some horns. And then the, yeah, the headgear <laughs> is like a really striking element of, of them. Uh, long, straight. It's like two swords. Sword-like coming horns. off their head. Uh, and they're, they're especially from a distance i think that the horns look jet black when you get up to them once you've harvested one i think they look almost a little bit more dull yeah but maybe they're just a little dusty too once you know once that business is done
1: there's an age piece to it too with the darkness of the oh, horns yeah. i didn't know yep. that. yeah the the juveniles will have like a a relatively kind of dusty looking horn so the one the one that you shot is a relatively young yep. bull we'll get into those those details a little bit more but when you look at the tips of those horns, you can see where that initial sheath is starting to wear away. And if you get into one that's that's an older animal, it'll have more of a smooth and polished and darker oh. kind of horn to it. And a long
0: horn on an orcs. Like Jeremy, you killed an orcs. Thirty-eight inches long.
3: And some of the longest horns are females. Yes. Yeah, you know the, the females tend to have, in my experience, some pretty long, thin or horns. And, you know, the bulls tend to be a little shorter, hold a little bit more mass like yours did. Um, and like, you know, like Carl said, the older they get, they get a little bit more polished. The uh, the female I was, you know, lucky enough to harvest had some, she was 38 inches long. She flared out right at 24, not to put numbers on it, but it was just a, a beautiful specimen. She was polished all the way down and she even had a, a little bit of like ivory tips there at the tip of her horns. So,
0: oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Real pretty. And a uh, a big whopper is mid
2: forties. Well, yeah, I mean, like if for bulls, if you shot a forty inch bull, people would be like, "That is, you know, that is a th- that is the oryx of of a, a lifetime." lifetime. Kind of like you know, that's the that's like a, be
0: the that's gold like a two hundred inch
3: mule deer, right? A one eighty whitetail, right? Yeah, I got you. I think that thirty to forty is what I'm seeing as being the average. Yeah,
0: yep. yeah. And
1: where were we? In terms of the one you got. No. Oh. In terms of the story, I just wanted to real quick fill people in what they look like. Well, I, I think Mike's doing an awesome job of lining out the appearance of the orcs. Um, one one piece that we haven't talked about, though, is that paintbrush tail. Yeah. That was... Oh. That's, that's, something, that's something that always stands out, and um, especially when you're glassing for them, they've got this tail that, like the tip of the tail, it looks like it could almost drag on the ground, and uh, it's got these maybe twelve inch or longer hairs that extend from probably halfway down the tail to the tail tip. The whole the whole length of the tail is probably in the neighborhood of eighteen inches or so. And then those hairs extend significantly farther beyond that. And it seems like when they're on their feet, that tail's just constantly swooshing. So a lot of times when you're glassing, especially once the heat of the day has picked up and you're looking through that heat mirage, you know, you're trying your your search image is like that that kind of cream colored body and if you see that that flickering tail that fly fly swatter tail kind of blacking out a portion of the shape in the distance that can be one of the telltale things that you're looking at an oryx as opposed to a similarly colored cow and we have encountered a number of cattle on this trip that have some striking resemblance to oryx in various ways but but the tail is one of the things that can definitely give them away from a long distance
3: if I could spin back to a couple of the numbers, some of the population, just to throw that out. So they said between 1969 and 1977, 93, as you mentioned, car were released. Uh, they expected that to reach about 600 animals on WISMER. Whismur being White between, Sands Missile White, Range. White Sands Missile Range. And by 2001, they, the population had peaked to about between four and 6,000. And now we're looking at it. And they say currently the population is between three to 4,000. Oh.
2: And the information Jeremy's quoting is from a New Mexico Department of Game and Fish wildlife note. So Correct. if somebody's really curious what they look like, that would be a place to go and get a page or two of information about works in New Mexico and see a picture of one. Does it, does it, do you guys know what year they started uh, allowing people to hunt for them?
3: Well, they said by... Already by the mid 1990s, the overabundance had prompted the game department in Wismer to start to create hunting opportunities. Okay.
0: So what, like when we say that I'm down here hunting right now or, or hunting for orcs I drew what's called an off-range hunt and Carl mentioned off-range hunts a minute ago. So Oryx hunting, like in, in the general vernacular of Oryx hunting, if you say like, I drew an Oryx tag, uh, People in the know will know that you're talking about New Mexico. Um, they will say to you immediately, <laughs> off-range or on-range? Yeah. On-range is, I don't want to say it's cooler, but on-range is much more difficult to draw. Correct? Correct. And why
2: is that? Well, it's... Because it, there is a whole bunch of them well there's a whole bunch of them and of course you know white sands missile range is an active military installation and so there are a lot of things going on on that installation and so any of the hunts that are on the range require really close coordination between new mexico game and fish and the missile range And, you know, that level of complexity to kind of work hunts in around missions, um, I think makes, makes it really difficult to hold lots and lots of hunts on the range. So there are much, you know, the hunting opportunities are far fewer on the range. And so there's more Oryx on the range because, you know, there, there's just not as many tags or as many hunting opportunities as what you drew off range when you so if you draw an
0: on range oryx tag which means you draw a tag to hunt on white sands missile range um you and everyone with you has to go through a background check
2: yeah so my wife drew a once in a lifetime hunt oh but now we're getting i gotta explain that okay oh sorry no i'll do that i'll do that. i think i can handle this
0: one there are a variety of hunts that occur on white sands missile range there are Broken horn hunts, and you can apply for this. Anybody listening to this show, I think, can go. If they can pass a background check.
3: If they can check. pass a background Well, no, check.
0: You, need to, you don't need to pass a background check to apply, it? Oh, yeah, you? but if you get drawn. Right, okay, I'm saying they can the apply. Check. Yeah. I don't know. You, yeah, you, you can apply. apply. You might not Anyone be able could hunt. go on here and fill out a thing and say, I want to apply for a white Sands, an on-range hunt. You can apply for a broken horn hunt which means you can only shoot an Oryx with one busted horn. That is not once in a lifetime, I meaning you can get it again later. You can apply for a non, a once-in-a-lifetime Oryx hunt, which means you can pick any Oryx you want.
2: Then when you draw that, you're done for your life. Yeah, I've been over here shaking my head. I think yep. all of that was correct.
0: Now, can you go from getting the once-in-a-lifetime to a broken horn?
2: Yes. So, which, which I think is one of the things, if you look at drawing odds for broken horns, it's not like, oh man, it's, you know, it's really easy to draw an on-range broken horn hunt because everybody that's ever drawn a once in a lifetime range hunt then becomes more likely to apply on the range for broken horn hunts. Yeah. So. And then there's also hunts, as I understand it now, there are
0: all manner of hunts that the military puts on. They put on a hunt. They have tags available to Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. Right. They have tags
2: available to people that work there. There, there may be. I, I'd have to look at the at the book. There, there may be an active duty veteran hunt. Although that a special draw for them. There, there are also oryx on some other uh, military installations in New Mexico. Uh, like the McGregor range, which is part of Fort Bliss. And so I get a little confused on the details sometimes regarding active duty hunts and, and the returning Iraq and Afghanistan veteran hunts. But there, there, there are a number of opportunities for military folks. And then there, there are population management, Oryx hunts that you have to have the, clearance to go you have to have security clearance to go on range which generally means that you are somebody who in some capacity works on the range and has already passed all of the security so stuff. if you actively hold security clearance there are sort of like these emergency hunts where you can go out and they use it to go out and get orcs that are getting, yeah i don't know that, the that way I of stuff call them necessarily emergency but they're used as a population management tool yeah
0: So when you apply and you, and you land, so you apply and you get an on-range hunt, which is not what we have. You get an on-range hunt, then you got to submit and go through security clearance. Yeah. You
2: and your hunting buddies. Then you have a three-day season? Well, so yeah, I mean, it's, you do a number of things through that application process, you know, some pre-training about, being on the missile range where there's always a concern about unexploded ordnance. Yeah. They told you if you didn't drop it, yeah, don't pick it up. (laughs) My favorite quote from the training was the guy was like, pretty much this boils down to like, if you didn't drop that thing, don't even think about picking it up. (laughs) It could blow you up. Um, but yeah, so you, uh, my wife's hunt. So she drew a once in a lifetime hunt on the range. um, we show up at the gate early in the morning. You know, they tell you when to be there. You end up in a big line of cars with all the other people. How many tag holders are rolling in there on that day? I think f- around 50 is my record. And they all got two bodies with them or whatever. Three, probably. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the Hunter well, and the Maximum. Well, it is, right. It is a maximum of the Hunter plus three guests. So it's basically never more than four. Yeah. Um, so all, sh- all the guests have to do the background check too. Uh, everybody has to be checked, and they like you know. There's this a, is all pre-checked. Yeah, yeah, that's all ahead of time. Then you show up at the gate. You know they may. Man, they what may, an
0: enormous amount of work for somebody, right? Yeah. And
2: you have to like you have to do things like uh, submit the serial number of the firearms that you're going to take. You know, you you're not allowed to take additional firearms outside of those. You're limited to uh, two rifles. No photos. No recording equipment. Right.
4: Do they check your firearm when you get on range?
2: I I do not recall that we got checked, but I have certainly heard stories of people getting checked. I know I've heard stories of other of folks showing up like and having their cooler because they're down there camping or whatever, you know, and they have some beer in the cooler. Well, that's against the range rules, so they won't let you on with that beer. You know, you gotta you gotta throw that away. So it's you know it's pretty rigorous right there at the gate just getting on and they check everybody in and look at everybody's IDs and they do all that stuff. And then you proceed to a little sort of hunt organization area (laughs) and everybody gets out of their truck and, and then you stand there and listen to a briefing. So they really sort of repeat all the stuff that they've already provided you written material on, you know, about, I mean, a little bit about Oryx and you know their anatomy so that you're effective at at shooting them which i think we'll probably get into but you know also again about unexploded ordnance and being very careful and they review a hunt map with you because there are places on the range that require that, that either are closed because they are known to have unexploded ordnance you know and, and a high density of it and you can't go in there because it's dangerous or that there's some active, you know, military exercise or, or like to do operation going on experiments and aliens and stuff. (laughs) I don't know about that, but testing um, alien aircraft and stuff like that. Sure. (laughs) But you know, so, so there's, there's still a number of places even when you're on range, it's like, if you, if you are caught going in there, you will immediately be escorted off the range and probably lucky if that's the only consequence that that comes of it and even when you leave they look at your phone I've, i you know i I've, I've heard that's another sort of thing that i've i've heard has happened uh it it didn't happen to us um like no one reviewed your your records and, and my you know my recollection and, and again, if if you draw one of these hunts, don't listen to this podcast and and not read any of the information they send you. <laughs> you like, no, I'm, I'm <laughs> good. I'm good. You. I'm skookum. <laughs> <They, laughs> I'm skookum on the whole deal. Let me go. I actually recall that they they now I believe require you to have a cell phone so that if they lose track of you or you know some of the roads on the range are as rough as things that we drove today this week. You know, if you get stuck back there you have a better chance of, of getting help. Um, my recollection is they told us you can take a photo, you can take photos of the oryx, but they don't want anything in the photos. Like they don't want big panoramic skyline kind of stuff. You know, it's like, if you're standing there kind of looking down at the oryx, you know, with, with dirt, you know, junipers, whatever it is, kind of the ground, that's okay. But You know, don't, don't drive around and take photos of anything other than your Oryx. Don't take any video period, you know, and when you do take pictures of the Oryx, make sure that, that those photographs are, you know, just that limited to to that sort of small field of view. And when you go through all this rigmarole,
0: you drive out of there and all of a sudden it's just Oryx standing everywhere. Uh,
2: I don't know that I would say that that was necessarily our experience. Well, the success rates are in the 90s. It, it's it's interesting because, of course, you... So one thing to come back to quick is you mentioned three days. So my wife's hunt, that was what I, all that I just described was Friday morning. And then we had... I believe we had to be off range by the end of shooting light on Sunday. So... I mean, and really the briefing and stuff takes up most of that Friday morning. So it's really about two and a half days of hunting that you get on that once in a lifetime hunt. So there's some, there's some pressure, you know, <laughs> I mean, by the end of my wife shot hers on Saturday afternoon and by Saturday afternoon, you're going like, you know, we, we want to make something work out here. Cause it, the once in a lifetime element doesn't have anything to do with whether you actually harvest an animal or not. So did she get like a big giant toad? No. No. She got one very similar to the, to the one you harvested this week. Yeah. But, uh, as far as what it was like, it's kind of interesting because of course now you've got 50 hunters right at the hunt briefing area and there's a, there can be a bit of a race to their trucks to kind of like get out there and find, you know, the Oryx close to the road we, we kind of opted out of that. We we were just kind of like, you know what? We'll mosey back to our trucks. We'll, (laughs) we'll let this, you know, this rush of, of folks clear out and then we'll take off to some areas that, you know, we had gotten advice from people to look at. Yeah. We'll leave the light on for you. (laughs) Right. And so we got, we, you know, we did get back there the first afternoon and got up kind of on top of the, you know, cooler in the bed of the truck and broke out some glass and pretty quickly found some animals and, and, uh, we spent, I I have actually probably never spent that much time within 200 yards of a group of animals that we wanted to harvest one of. And, and we never got a shot because of what, uh, they were in a really wide open area and we made a good stock, but the, the shooting conditions were such that The grass was tall enough, we couldn't, she couldn't lay down and shoot off of her pack. So we had to try to get up just a little bit, but, but I mean, like, there's really nothing between us and the orcs other than, you know, 10 inch tall grass. And so trying not to be obvious, but, but getting high enough and a solid enough rest to get her a shot. And then kind of what would happen would, would be, there were enough animals that, one that we would want you know would get out in the perfect spot and by the time we got set up and she got on that one another one would walk in front of it or it would walk back into the group so it just it was one of those weird kind of situations where you're you know you just like for two hours you're like any second this is going to all come together this is a comfortable range you know this is really sort of competent shooting area for my wife who's quite handy with a rifle but um it it just never happened and then we as it was getting dark we tried to get a little bit more aggressive and of course that which you know i tried to get more aggressive Yeah, (laughs) yeah and and get it to come together and it didn't
0: Man, between streaming services, fitness apps, and delivery services, it's never ending. I'm talking about the, the, the subscriptions, the monthly dings on your credit card. Well, thanks to Rocket Money, I'm no longer wasting money on the ones I forgot about. Rocket Money is a personal finance app. It goes in and finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, meaning, you know, like let's say there's like a show that comes out and you want to watch it and you wind up doing like this free trial and you forget about it. And then two years later, you realize you're paying those hosers 12 bucks a month for something you don't use. It finds that stuff, cancels it and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Instead, Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. Stop wasting money... On things you don't use, cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Again, rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. They have a reputation for going
2: down and getting up and running off. Well, you know... Carl may actually be better to tackle the anatomy, but but they are they they have a very interesting anatomy that is substantially different from North American deer species. Yeah, I mean they they do that that deep chest that Mike was talking about. I
1: think it leaves you a lot of opportunity to place what you think is a good shot and have it not end up being lethal. And and they're also just a tough animal, you know. So that that build that they have. Um, The advice generally that that you hear when it comes to shot placement on an Oryx is if you think about like on a whitetail, for example, putting those crosshairs sort of tight behind the shoulder, um, you'd want to be farther forward with that and maybe even a little bit lower. Um, And then when you take that first shot, if you're fortunate enough to put the animal down, I think it's very advisable based on a lot of anecdotes I have both heard and personally experienced to be ready for a follow-up shot, because I have I've personally seen animals be knocked down off their feet by a shot, lie there on the ground for a handful of seconds, and then kick their feet a few times, jump back up, and then run to the horizon. So, a high degree of um, conservatism with your your willingness to follow up like air on the side of multiple shots, I would say. Yeah, be liberal with your follow-up shots. Be liberal with your follow-up shots. That's a good way of putting it.
0: Yeah. And conservative with your um, celebrations. Yes. <laughs> For sure. Yep. So we had.
2: So that breaks down. That's a pretty good job yeah, on on range. I, oh, you got some more to add well, to the I just, on range? To, to Carl's anatomy lesson there, I would say that, I, I would add that in addition to their chest being very deep, their necks are very deep. Mm-hmm. and the location of their spine actually dips kind of far down into their body yep. and so this big hump of shoulder that makes up you know the 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 depth that you're looking at them in profile has processes or like almost fin rays of bone that stick up off of it and i think that it is not uncommon spinal,
0: spinal processes i think they call them, right
2: yeah. yeah i think i think it is not uncommon for them to get hit up high in those processes of bone sticking off the spine. And that kind of creates shock in the spine, knocks them down, gives them the appearance of being stone dead. And then as a lot of whitetail hunters even have experienced, you know, if you shoot just above or just below the spine with a rifle, like you can have that happen, right? The deer just looks dead for a minute or two minutes and then just pops up, and runs away. So I think my suspicion is that that is a kind of a common thing that occurs with Oryx. So we had, we did not have the on-range hunt.
0: For everybody else who doesn't have an, like the other thing you can apply for when you go online to apply, you apply for like the broken horn on-range, the once in a lifetime on-range, yada, yada. Or you just get a straight up off-range tag. And the off-range tag is good for the entire state. Except the range.
2: So basically it's good for anywhere there's not a bunch of them. Yeah, and those those other military installations and of course- You can't go on those. Places that are specifically excluded. There's some research areas and- and Gotcha. uh, So
0: it's good, yeah. It's good for not on the military installations, not on any kind of thing that would otherwise be closed to hunting, but it's good for all public lands um, in the state though the activity and the population is kind of centered around the missile range. Um, private land, off-range private land, anyone can go buy a tag at any time and shoot an orcs on private land year-round. I didn't know that little detail till yesterday. Yeah. So when you get an off-range tag like what I had, it's good, private or public, off range and they run the hunts they used to run the hunts year round so every month for every month they issue about 150 160 tags they now only run it 10 months out of the year
2: april and may they take it off for whatever reason as you think... want to go turkey hunt <laughs> they take turkey season off no but... i think it's it's associated with the draw cuz you have to apply for the license so there has to be a period you know where like so yeah. our draw was in April, right? Well, they couldn't. We couldn't call. They couldn't call you up in in April, basically, and say, "Oh, hey, it's the twentieth of April, and and you drew an orcs tag. Yeah, but that's one. easy
0: to solve. That's not the pr- answer because if that was the case, then
1: you would just do the draw and issue April and May for the a whole year ahead. Yeah. But the, you I think have a valid lot of, hunting license because the val- the hunting license expires
0: yeah, March thirty first. I, I think
2: that you think it really is related uh, to that. I, that's that that's been my understanding. I, oh, I uh. again, I, I maybe not totally scook them on on. Yeah, no, I, on no. That no now that you put idea. it
0: that way, I like it, and I think that you would have without divulging details about you. I think that you would have reason to understand.
2: Sure, through proximity. I have or- a lot of conversations hunters. about. Hunting he talks and a lot about hunting and fishing in with, New Mexico. With people who are very knowledgeable. So uh,
0: every month, 10 months a year, they hand out right now, like what, 160?
3: 160, I
0: believe. They give out 160 tags, and your tag is good for one month. So in a lot of areas where you get used to, like, deer season is whatever. It's a month long, too much long. It is always oryx season. And those oryx that are off range <laughs> seem to be very aware of the fact that people are trying to get them. Because they live with it year-round. It's always Oryx hunting season. And they really, really overreact (laughs) to sounds of trucks. Or you could say they respond
1: appropriately. They respond appropriately.
0: (laughs) A dude perched up on a uh, safari rack in the back of a pickup. Right, well- we'll is cause for leaving not only
2: the area, but cause for leaving the county. Draw a proportionate response from the Oryx, yeah. Or returning to the range. Exceedingly wary.
0: And perhaps they have a sense of where it's safe to be. It would seem that way, yeah. Relatively safe, anyway. Yeah. They have a sense of what direction to go when you get after them. So we showed up to hunt and I had what these guys have uh called themselves, and I stand by at the O team because I was probably the first not sure not the first I'm a first time oryx hunter who was being uh able to hunt with three friends who all are seasoned oryx hunters like how many hunts have you been on Jeremy probably about a half dozen six or seven and how many have
2: you gotten personally? I've gotten one personally, and you. Uh, I've gotten two and probably about a half a dozen others, the other wow. hunts that were successful. Yeah, I would say, I mean, similar. So I've shot
1: one and I've probably been out with half a dozen hunts total. And, you know, I certainly would acknowledge there's a ton of people who have like infinitely more experience, but the team that we've assembled, I think there's good chemistry and a, and a, just a good degree of, um, like the right personalities and some people that have good game eyes. So I, I would say like, we're probably not like the varsity level in terms of Oryx experience, but we're, we have a, a, a trio here of people who have spent a lot of time glassing and know what we're looking for. Um, so I'm sure there's a, a bunch of people listening to this who would be more skookum than we are when it comes to Oryx hunting, but we're, I would say like at a, at a proficient level. Ha, describe Oryx hunting. Well to be honest with you, the time I've spent looking at Oryx um, has I probably spent more time looking through glass at Oryx when I've been hunting deer or elk than when I've been hunting Oryx. So um, a lot of the same strategies like trying to get out there find a good vantage point. Um, you know I think in an ideal situation you would identify the location of Oryx before they see you i know a lot of people spend a lot of time driving driving roads and looking for them from the vehicles i think you know and we've spent a lot of time driving around just because the area is so vast and the places that we want to hunt are far from each other but i like the idea of getting out away from the vehicle getting up high looking through glass hopefully finding an animal before it's detected you which is one of the downsides i think of essentially road hunting you know oftentimes you're going to be jumping up in oryx with the truck and and Hoping to bail out and get a shot at it. And to me, like I would prefer a hunt where you're standing on your feet, looking through a pair of binoculars on a tripod, finding an Oryx, planning a move, and getting in there. I think Mike Mike put it really well. He said something like getting in there and tangling with them. Like, oh, you mix gotta it mix it up. Mixing yeah. it up. That you, gotta, was it. you just gotta get in there and mix it get up. Get in there it. and mix it up. I think that that puts it really well, man. And and that's you know, for me and I think for for us, like that's the that's the way that we like to hunt, man, like, but that that gets a little bit th- that gets a little bit complicated because of the
0: landscape. Oh yeah. So the first big time the and first, the conditions, yeah, the first orcs we found on this trip that wasn't on range. So we're up on a glass and knob where I don't know, man. Half of what you're looking at is on range. We're actually like staring down the fence line. Yep. From on high and you're like you're looking down there's a there's a fence line that's been cleared like a very clear demarcation line and half of what we can see is on range half of what we can see is off range and there's a big difference i mean there's a bunch of orcs on range yep maybe i don't know what we saw the 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 at
1: first afternoon and next morning we saw know, 16 Close uh, yeah, I mean there was seventeen
2: at one point in time all visible on one side of the fence. Yeah, Jeremy and I were confident we had seventeen at one, you know, basically at at one time. And then Mike finally finds one maybe
0: two hundred yards on the other side of the fence. Right. We felt saw it from three and a half miles away. And you think like wow, if you can see it from three and a half miles away, it must be wide open. That's not the case. (laughs) It's like you get glimpses of stuff from way far away. If you're up high or whatever, you just get these little glimpses. And you realize that you might only, the thing might only be visible like 5% of the time, 1% of the time. I don't know. You can watch for hours, and there's like one moment when there it is, and then it's not. But then you get down on its level, and there's nowhere to get up and like kind of like snipe in at them. There's just nothing you can do. You just got to go in there. It's all stuff higher than your head. And even though you caught some little random glimpse through the gaps and the stuff, at the end of the day, you got to get in there. There's no place to go wait. There's just, you got to go in there and find him. He's not going to come to you. Yeah, got to mix it up. Yeah, it's I mean, it's not they, like you're going to get him. You know, <laughs> he's not going to. You're not going to get him at the old crossing. You know, right? <laughs> I mean,
3: what's difficult, you know, being kind of somewhat of a spotter too. You know, you you see these animals. You know, the the hunter and whoever else takes off after the animal to put on a, a potential stock. And as a spotter, you really want to be, you know, dead set on that animal and provide the most intel to that hunter to make sure they can they ha- that they can have a successful stock. And when you're sitting behind the glass. You know, the contour of that landscape looks so flat, but when those animals start moving, they just almost instantly disappear, you know? And so it can get real frustrating as a spotter, as you're, you know, trying to lay down the groundwork for that hunter, closing the distance, but you lose sight of those animals and you lose sight of them for, I think Mike and I, you know, as you guys were hunt, as you were stalking in on your Oryx, there were moments where we would see the Oryx completely broadsided, you know? as plain as day and then he would disappear and we would for 10-15 minutes have have no idea where he was and you would just be panning across and every now and then you know going back to carl's you know the polishing of the horns you would see these yuccas going back and forth and shaking and then you would just see a little shine with the tips of the horns and you would occasionally glance that you know and then the oryx would move and then there was a couple instances where we were like well I think they're gone you know like mm. i don't know what we're gonna do but all of a sudden you would see something barely you know flicker and and you would think that it was the wide open and if there were an oryx there you would see it but he's just behind the contour that makes him almost invisible
0: yeah the one with the one we got on to where we went
1: in after it we spooked that probably 50 yards i think when it jumped up it was probably sub 50 and when it crossed out in front of us at a gallop and i like i like that yeah, verb because gallop when that thing moved, I mean, we knew we were getting <laughs> close to where we'd seen it, and there were probably three or four seconds of hearing galloping hooves before we could see the thing, and there was no question, like, that's the Oryx, right? It's not going to be a, a beef cow lumbering out of there. It was like the brump, 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 and it came across a gap at, you know, 50 or 60 yards in front of yeah, you. You an had insane your insane looking animal, yeah. big long tail flying out behind it. Yep. And that was a a big-bodied bull. He didn't have very large, like, very long horns, but the body on it was like a a tank of an oryx. And, you know, you made a good decision in that situation not to shoot. And one of the things we talked about after the fact is the tendency of that animal to want to look back at whatever spooked it. You know, kind of like when you think about a mule deer stotting away and wanting to pause and look back and occasionally give you a shot opportunity. Um, Oryx are notorious for kind of wondering like, what the heck was that? And so, you know, that particular individual did stop, unfortunately, in an area where we could not see it. And as we pursued the direction that he had galloped off, we ended up spooking him again at a farther distance and watched him, you know, disappear again into the vegetation, which in that particular example was some kind of scattered, fairly thick juniper trees, one seed junipers were the, the thing giving us fits.
2: And that animal, Jeremy and I stayed up on the glassing knob to try to keep an eye on it. And, and we lost that Oryx about 20 minutes after you guys left, you know, to cover by vehicle and then foot this three and a half miles, which we knew would take at least an hour. Um, and we lost it, but where you jumped, it was probably within a hundred yards Of where we had last seen it, It it. just disappeared. But you never even saw it spooked, though. No, we never saw it. Well, after we spooked that one, we decided to
0: go check out the other side of this little ridge, and went over there and popped into one. The second one we saw, and this one was at 400 yards, already dead on us. Yep, just staring at us. And we're just like creeping up over the top. It's at 400 yards and locked onto us, and gone. Then I was like, man, this is not going to be super easy.
2: Cause a lot of really hard to draw tags wind up being easy, but this is not the case. Yeah. I think this is like a really interesting tag to hunt because it's not easy, but when you look at the success rates, they're not bad. It's not like, you know, it's not like killing a bull elk in Montana in the general season. 20% success. Right. I mean, 14 to 20 or something like that. Yeah. yeah, You know, so I think this hunt is like 50 or 60% success rate. So like if you hunt them. If you really, you know, if you put days in and you kind of grind it out, yeah. You know, and y- you will very likely have an opportunity. So it's not like it's not hard from the sense that like you never see an animal, you know what I mean, but but it's very hard from the sense that like you have to make a lot of right correct decisions, you know, in in the whole process to really get it to work.
0: When the state posts success rates for the hunt, are they only giving you last year's success rates or is it like an accumulation of years? Probably just last year's success rates, right?
1: Yeah, like, you, can, you can look it up year to year. Yeah. And we're talking like, if you look last year, I think it's like a 40 to 60% window across those 10 months of off-range hunts is kind of the, okay. the ballpark. Another factor there is that you got a month to do it. You know, and you and I were chatting a bit when you found out you drew the tag. You're like, what would you, what would you recommend? I said, well, you could come down here and we might end up getting one in a day or two, but I think like a week of grinding it out, if we hit it hard, you will very likely have a good opportunity if we hit it hard for a week. And we got one on our fourth day. Fourth day. Yep. Another thing that happened to us while hunting is uh,
0: oryx don't jump fences. Oryx go under fences. And they're big and they don't fit just under any old fence and so the thing that's well known among oryx hunters is that you need to find that they'll use they'll know of crossing spots to get our fences so whether it's a fence that would put them back into the into the safety of the missile range or or just range fences out on the open out in the blm land like everything around here is blm It's ton of blm so range fences out on blm land um they'll have known crossing spots and it seems just from my observation it seems like they like washouts yep where flash flooding or whatever scours out and makes a significant gap under a fence and then they'll use those spots i was talking to an outfitter who was saying when he's seen people archery hunt, successfully archery hunt did he ever say he says he's seen people get shots yeah he hasn't had any clients off range he hasn't had any off range clients get one with a bow but, but on-range clients get them with bows. But I think you're saying off-range, he's had people get shots, um, and those have been by finding a crossing under a fence and then just posting up and waiting on that crossing under the fence. And the thing that they like to do, he was explaining, is the thing they do is they brush out all the crossings so you can tell the vintage of tracks coming through. And they'll also just take tires and stuff and drag tires down the road to scrub the road of tracks and then in the morning you go drive the scrubbed road. I've seen people do this by pulling old box springs behind mm-hmm. there, like, uh, just like bed springs. Mm-hmm. The same way you might groom out a baseball field or whatever. Right. Yeah. A chunk of mm-hmm. chain link fence. Yeah. Yeah. Scrub it all out. And then in the morning go drive and pick up a track. Cause the peculiarity of this area, which would not, this would be hard for people to picture, they live in other parts of the country. When you're following a track in the desert, you can pretty much run you can pretty much run and follow a track once you know what you're looking at there's not so many tracks that it's confusing it wouldn't be like following whitetails in the snow where you know they're crisscrossing and zigzagging and here's another group of six and then seven more across the track and then you started hanging out with five of them and split off and you can never do it. it's like it's sparse enough there's a few enough life forms around that when you get on that track you're gonna run that track down and one day we're driving along and we hit where there's a whole little, little hoedown in the road. And we got out and sussed it out for quite a while. And eventually found where the track, he had come in, mingled around the road a long time, went under a fence. And then we got on that track and followed that track. And um, you're just, most of the time, you'd have like a maximum shooting distance of 50 yards. Most of the time, like for like a clear shot. But you're just able to follow that track. And following this oryx track, he went to, I th- we, we were calling them bedding areas, but they're like scent post areas. He went from one to the next. I think he went to four spots. Yep. And the spots were all the same. Big shade tree, tons of shit scattered around the shade tree, pawed up ground and obvious beds. And then that track would leave. And he'd go off in some other direction. and He'd hit another one of those spots. And we followed him in a gigantic backwards S.
1: That's exactly right. At which point it was like 103 degrees and we gave up on the track. Yeah, that S, I mean, the way you described it is exactly right. If you imagine just the mirror image of a giant S that from top to bottom was about 1.4 miles tall. So the length of that S, we probably tracked that thing for two, two and a half miles. And it was this circuitous route that intersected with a number of those scent post spots along the way and it was cool because there were other you know looked like other places where multiple animals might have come together and broken off and, then and split apart yeah split and, apart. Trained and, it hard. and I felt like at one point we might have got off on inadvertently a bigger and Carl thought we upgraded a Chase because
0: also in the track we were on like we you'd get confused at these scent areas yeah and Carl felt and it, 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 I think he was right otherwise I, like, I feel like our track is like ever so slightly bigger than the one we were on earlier an interesting thing about it, the reason I was hard to keep optimism about the track was that we found where a coyote had stepped in its track. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, did a coyote step in its track five minutes ago, or are we on a day old a track from the evening before? Yeah. And then we found where it bedded, but where it bedded, a lizard had walked across. And I'm yeah. like, okay, did he just get up? And a lizard happened to then just run across, or has that been there a while and that you know what I mean that shook my
1: confidence a little bit. Yeah. And on the flip side though, we had a couple we found a couple of fecal piles that, you know, if you chipped away at the top, down at the core there was still like some mucusy moisture yep. down in there. And and the way that sun is cooking down, like I don't think a pile of scat like that could stay put for 24 hours and not get baked to the core. Not get dried all the way out. Because that, I mean, they they were out in the wide open. So you and I, like, independently, I think we reached a similar conclusion that that the tracks we were looking at were probably from, like, the afternoon or evening of the day before. And then you're wondering, like, okay, you know, the gate of these things, if they're just cruising, obviously they can cover a ton of ground, but if they're in the process of, you know, like, kind of checking out these different scent post areas, bedding down from time to time, feeding... Like, maybe we're gaining ground. But one thing is, sure, in your mind, you're like, I know beyond the shadow of a doubt, at the end of this trail, yeah. there is an Oryx. And I don't know how far that and if is. You,
0: and if you had the stamina and, and it didn't get over the fence into the range, like, you would eventually spook it or find it. Yep. Uh, following that track, another interesting thing about it is, like, when you're up glassing, so,
3: Jeremy, explain your safari rack. Well, I think, I think you guys, you know, bring up a great point, right? That there's no perfect way to hunt Oryx. You know, we did, we tracked, we got up on knobs and we glassed and we cruised the safari rack and you know, about 10 years ago when I first started hunting Oryx with uh, some friends of mine, we've kind of fell into that same scenario where we were in the vehicle, you know, trying to track, trying to get to knobs to glass. And we just weren't being productive. We weren't turning up a lot of animals and we realized. You know, with the contour of the landscape we needed to get a vantage point you know there the habitat is so expansive that you know in order to cover that ground you want to be doing it efficiently and so we you know i have uh, two really good friends uh, my my two buddies they you know put in a lot of hard work in creating this safari rack they took an old ski lift mediocre chair. welders at the time at the time you're
4: so alive. i'm joking i'm joking
0: hey this is coming from the world's worst welder well no there's people that have never welded and then there's me the world's worst welder and then
2: everything up from there i feel like i could give you a run for your money on on that title my high school ag teacher more or less just like asked me to stop please mike yeah like, like this keep, is mike, like, i would like you to stop you, using the welder you uh, i will just give you a passing grade
0: but i don't want you to do it anymore i, I th-
2: that is really a, a accurate portrayal of my ex- my experience in welding i think not to beat the welding thing to death
1: but there's like form and function right and when it comes to function that rack held Those, two of us. You guys are I, I, I guys know were that we're, we're in we're in sensitive times.
0: <laughs> we're in sensitive times and everyone right now, and I'm talking nationally, everyone right now is oversensitive and we're struggling with our sensitivity. I'm just making a joke about some globby-ass-looking welds is there- on the safari rack. And I'll point out that I was very aware of these because the roads are very rocky. And when you're up on the safari rack and the driver tips a little bit to the right because it's a thing, <laughs> you're like on a, in the what do you call it, in, the tuna in the tuna tuna, a tuna boat? A tuna tower. You're in the tuna tower. <laughs> yeah. So two-foot C's in a tuna tower feels like it's eight-foot C's. But point. someone yeah, down yeah. on the deck is like, no, it's two-foot C's. Like, how can it be two-foot C's? I'm swaying... Ten feet side to side. See, I think you're. I think so you're looking at it. Throughout. The welds held. The C clamp didn't. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> at one point, the C clamp inexplicably <laughs> broke in half. I never seen, Like I thought, it, like, well, it must have come loose. I mean, they're like, no, no, it broke. I've it got, never seen I think that it got either. too hot. Yeah,
3: I've never seen. I think that it either. got too hot from the heat
0: of the sun. Yep. And it burst the metal. But <laughs> listen, man, <laughs> it's a sensitive time. I understand everyone's sensitive <laughs> about everything. The welds, uh, they might hold great. I'm not saying I could do better. The welds are shitty. I'm not gonna disagree. But they held. And Absolutely. it just struck me as funny. Absolutely. To be up there swaying back and forth <laughs> looking at that weld. Yeah. No. For a lot of hours. And <laughs> Absolutely. that back
1: bar. That back bar, man. It's
0: not yeah, very you
3: comfortable. know. Well, it's the type of thing where, you know, the first time you you make it you've learned what you can add to it to make it that much more comfortable and it's just unfortunate that we haven't had the time to make it that much more comfortable. No, what better could you want? He
0: He found a former ski lift bench. Yep.
3: Yeah, and it, it, it fits perfectly. And affix it to the top
0: of a contractor rack. Yeah,
3: it, it no, fits it fit perfectly. You know, and it's it gets genius. the job done. The idea is when you're trying to get to point A to point B, you know, get on those high spots, use the extra, you know, six six feet on top of that rack to just spend some time glassing. Puts you up in the breeze, too. It does. You know, you get you get the driver to cruise at that 15, 20-mile-an-hour oh, range, all, man, and you get the wind blowing through your hair. Yeah, otherwise, so you you're just comfortably miserable up there. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's been something that, has has helped us tremendously in covering ground and being able to turn up oryx. And but like you guys said, But you know, the point
0: being, what I was getting at about the Safari rack, and we'll move on to other hunt methods, but when we were tracking in Oryx, we never got like terribly far away from the we were zigzagging around. We got yeah, what a mile from the truck. One point four. We got one point four miles from the where the truck was. You're you're up there and you're glassing and you're like, oh there's nothing here. Yeah. I've looked, none here. Let's move. And then you get down into that shit. And the safari rack on the truck is how high? It's probably about seven feet, I would okay, say. Yeah. You get down into that shit, you're six feet tall. Yep. The safari rack is probably high. Yeah, the safari rack seven feet tall. And you realize that almost at no time can you look and see that thing. Right. And you're like, I think Carl put it like he said, I think that when we're glassing this stuff, we're probably, maybe we're seeing 10%. We're having, like, if there's an Oryx there, we have, like, a 1 in 10 of seeing it. And to to bring that, to, to highlight that, we go to a, a, a spot you guys had hunted before, and we're looking out on just solid, like, you know, over 180 degrees of, no, 180 degrees of, like, great stuff. We're kind of up by a stock tank. We got 180 of just flat. And we're nice and high. Nice and high. It's so flat that I noticed that Jeremy when Jeremy glasses, you don't even really mess around too much with binoculars. It's so flat that you can just take your spot and scope, and you can basically get everything from 150 or 200 yards out to infinity in one frame. So you can just take your spot and scope, paste it out, and just move it back and forth. There's no like up-down movement. You just got the whole damn scene as you swoop along. Uh We're sitting there, all of us, glassing, glassing, glassing. And all of a sudden, an Oryx is 700 yards away, standing on a sand mound. No one saw it. It's right in front of us. So everything to the left, everything to the right. No one caught a
1: glimpse of wherever the hell it came from. No, it it popped up in the frame of my binoculars. As I'm looking in my binoculars, seeing no Oryx, all of a sudden, an Oryx just emerges from below full body up on this knob looking at us
0: in order to stare at us in order like to, at yeah.
1: 700 yards it's already like very aware of us yeah i it, have a theory that that oryx was closer was way closer minutes before that or seconds before that like it was cruising along towards where we were where we were heard us up, whatever heard us saw us bolted and then was doing that like what the heck is going on back there from 700 yards away and that's when i saw it because that for it to pick us up, like, we went back down in it there seemed and to pick up the track. It just didn't make sense. So that's my theory on that one.
2: So we went out... Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and the Oryx, you know, if, if you imagine the way that we're looking, I mean, the Oryx is at 12 o'clock. Yeah. Like, yeah. It, you know, it's not, like, off to the side. It it no, directly it got, the way that everybody is faced. No, so unless it had been waiting like, there, unless it had been waiting
0: there all day, it somehow <laughs> passed, traveled through some amount of stuff in front of us, emerged, became visible, then gallops off. No one catches a glimpse of it leaving. We go out and strike its track and follow its track. And what does it do? It doesn't look like from the where we found, from where we picked up the track. It looks like it trotted in a
1: beeline and crossed into the missile range. It was like it had a particular spot in mind. And when we got to that place, it was a spot where. You know, that bottom strand of that barbed wire fence on the edge of the missile range ordinarily is probably like shin high. And at that spot, it was like mid-thigh high. Mm -hmm. And that Oryx, like without breaking stride, just it ducked right under at that spot.
0: As we were like following the track and I could see the missile range boundary coming up, I'm thinking that we're all thinking like it'll hit the fence, but then it'll obviously have to travel. And I'm trying to figure out like, is he going to cut left or right? And maybe we'll catch it going down the fence line somewhere trying to find where it can cross. But it had already knew where it was going to cross and hit the fence at a crossing. And boop,
2: back to safety. And it did all and that.
0: And then I was like, these sons of bitches, man. <laughs>
2: <laughs> They're like hard. It did all that with any, without any of us seeing it cover like what? 400 yards? Yep. Yep. While you think or- you're sitting there glassing
0: the area. Right. right. And meanwhile, you're glassing it so well, in fact, that one can run...
2: Through 400 yards of the stuff in front of you, and no one lays an eye on it. Right. Yeah. It disappeared off the sand mound. Jeremy picked it up one place to the left, so we knew it was going, you know, that direction. And then nobody ever saw it again
3: on the five of us. I mean, and we were looking in the range too, right? We expected that animal to make its way in there and do the old fashioned look back, you know, and an hour later, we're still looking for that animal on range and never found it. Did
2: yeah, Jeremy and I continued to? a spot from where we had originally seen the animal you know, while you guys tried to put a track job on it and nobody, neither of us ever put eyes on that thing. And that's the thing I've speculated
0: on a couple of times. Is I wondered about the relationship to the fence in two ways. I wondered about the relation to the fence is how onerous do they view like how annoying is it to cross because if you're hunting pronghorn you'll often find that a spooked pronghorn will get really confused at a, you know, like a four or five strand fence. If they hit the, if they're out of their normal routine and you, they get bumped or spooked somehow in a way they don't want to be spooked and they hit a fence, they'll be like, because they don't, I shouldn't say they don't, they, they will, okay, for, for all you people that are going to send in videos of antelope jump, yes, a pronghorn will jump a fence. One in a hundred. Yeah, they'll jump a fence. Do they like to Do they do it normally? No, they generally want to go under fences, but they they are capable, yes, of jumping fences. But I've watched them hit fences and then run for a mile down the fence, almost like second-guess themselves and start coming back and running down. It's almost like when when a deer is going across the road and it hits your car, that they'll just start paralleling your car now and then, and it seems so illogical. I see them do crazy shit up against fences, like very disoriented. So I was like, what is the Oryx's relationship to the fence in that way? And what is its relationship to knowing that the the safety of the other side of the fence? And I think that uh, they're not terribly annoyed by getting across the fence because they have spatial awareness where they know like the crossing. And, I, and my just little pet theory, which is like completely like an amateur theory, is that they are... Um, they're aware of that they're that they get screwed with less over there,
2: which every other kind of big anim, animal definitely figures that kind of stuff out. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think they understand, you know, that they're safer on the range side of the fence.
3: I've seen those animals cross in front of us at a fence line, and and they will cross under a fence almost about the same speed that they're approaching that fence oh if they're in about a gallop i've seen those it's amazing how fast an orcs can dip down to the ground you know we think about ourselves trying to crawl under a, the bottom strand of the barbed wire you know and you're on your knees and you're you know things are hurting i've seen those animals just dip and they're under that fence and they're maintaining the same momentum out of there so they they're pretty athletic i'll,
0: I'll share with you a fence story that I, i've shared before but it's worth it's worth it's worth uh telling it again uh we knew this guy in florida we were down there turkey hunting in florida one time and we ran into these guys that like to run pigs with dogs and they're like oh you guys should come out with us tonight and um this guy's family's cattle ranch a butt's a nature preserve um and the between stuff that's been traditionally grazed The difference between like what's been traditionally grazed, which is all these hammocks. So it's like just grasslands with these palm hammocks in it. Very open, um, grazed very low. It's just been, you know, grazed for whatever, a couple hundred years. I don't know. The bird preserve is a comparatively a jungle. So it was amazing to see this juxtaposition between something that hasn't been grazed in however many decades and something that traditionally is like very different landscape. So On the border between the cattle ranch and the preserve is a fence. The cattle ranch has uh, a problem with hogs digging it up too bad. So he put a hog-proof fence. Someone had put, historically, someone had put a hog-proof fence. But there, other people argue, well, there really is no hog-proof fence. But it's like kind of a hog-proof fence, though they're always finding ways to get in and around it. What this guy would do, because this guy liked to hunt pigs, he put little doorways into the hog-proof fence. This is the rancher's kid. He puts doorways into the hog-proof fence in order that the hogs can come onto the ranch. And let he lets them get used to the holes. So when we go out to hunt hogs, the first thing he does is, well, let me go close all the doors. He then drives down this big-ass long fence, closing all the doors once it's about midnight. Then we start a hunt. And guess where the dogs catch the pigs?
4: At the doors. At the doors.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, this is a little hunting method. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money Features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to RocketMoney.com/meat eater. That's RocketMoney.com/meat eater. RocketMoney.com/meat eater. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver, off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. and make sure to use code Meat Eater for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code Meat Eater. I want to tell you about an American made success story and Black Buffalo's award winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili.
4: The reason I like Black Buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older...
0: Consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black buffalo tobacco alternative, bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco.
1: There's a research preserve I used to live on um, in southeast Michigan when I was an undergraduate at the University of Michigan. And there was a a deer herd on the property. It's a famous deer herd. The George Reserve is the name of this place. And the fence had fallen into tremendous disrepair. And um, I worked one summer helping to repair that fence line. And there were some places where white-tailed deer trails were coming on and off the reserve. And one day... In the middle of the day, I just closed up a portion of that fence and there's a mountain bike trail that goes along the outside of the reserve and a mountain biker had spooked a white tailed doe. And so I'm standing there along the fence, just mending, mending a portion <laughs> of the fence and 20 yards to my left is the spot I just fixed. And this doe comes tearing through the woods and smashes into that spot in the fence. Oh, really? Backs up, smashes into it again, and then stands there looking at the spot and then races off the other way down along the fence line. So they get keyed into those crossing points. That's interesting, man. She's like, this normally works. Yeah, I mean, she hit it hard. Like I'm standing there at the fence, and you know, if you imagine like an outfielder going for a home run and crashing into the fence, that's what it sounded like. That big ching of the, you know, the the chain link. And then and then backed up and did the same thing again. Like I know this is the spot without a shred of doubt in her mind. I don't and know. And then why. the mountain biker comes by. Oh really? Yeah. I, I was like, what's she running from? You know, and, and then there's this 10-second yeah. delay and here comes a dude on a mountain bike. I don't know why I'm thinking this right
0: now, but I want to get back to what we're talking about. But I got a buddy who's a surveyor and he was surveying in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. And he put up those little contraptions that you use to look at each other, the two surveyors. Yep. And he said that uh, it's all in the, it's in the wintertime and all the, oh, the deer are starving and shit in the wintertime. And they got to go through and cut a sight line through the hemlocks. And, and these big, like big, well, they call them like cedar swamps up there, right? Yep. Is it hemlock or cedar up there? I've heard, I think it's Cedar Swamps. Okay. Yeah. So they cut the sight line and then he gets on his little thing and the other guy's on his little thing. And he said they're having a chainsaw running while they cut the sight line. Those deer just showing up. They hear the chainsaw and come a running. Yeah. So he said you'd get set up to do your work and you had to hustle because then all of a sudden all the deer would be filling in, eating all the junk they knocked down. And someone had to run along trying to scare the deer, herd the deer out of a way enough to then go back and try to do your survey work.
1: Yep. Yeah, I'd knock, Anyways, orcs hunt. I'd knock cedar <laughs> limbs down to catch deer as like a bait source when I was darting deer for my grad project. Oh, really? Winter. Yeah, you could just you could just trim a couple low limbs that were just out of reach of the browse line, and it was just as good as having any other kind of bait out there for bringing them into dart range. And tranquilize them. Yep.
0: Huh. Uh, The one we got. The one we got, the orcs we got, was very similar to hunt. Uh, it was like very similar to an antelope hunt
1: situation least for me. I would agree in general terms other than the vegetation. No,
0: but in terms of there's some, yep. generally drifting like like a caribou antelope kind of setup I feel like. Like there's some pretty far away. Yep. generally drifting in some direction on a somewhat identifiable land along a somewhat identifiable vegetation zone. Yeah. Um and you strike off at an angle and try to get to where you think they will arrive. But again, far off, it was like, oh, there's some orcs moving along and there he is and there he is and there he is and there he is. And then you get down in that shit and it's like, I have no idea <laughs> what is going on. And we were using this far off power line like Who spot you spotted it again, Mike Dan?
2: Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it was, a, game eye, it was a real group effort, though, to keep up with that. Well, no, but you were the first one to picked it off. Yeah, I, I, right. And way off of the distance. But it was real see... obvious. I mean, this one was, like, an easy one. It just sort of like Carl's, where it was, like, you know, scanning something. You scan 10 times, and are like, oh, there there's an orc standing, right? Like, no question. Like, well, that, right there's an orcs broadside. Yep. And way the hell off was
0: a power line, and you were able to be, like, there's a trailer you could see, and you're like, count eight power poles. And so when we struck off, we just went at an angle and at a point got lucky because we're sort of getting like, you know, one where they are. And then we eventually catch a glimpse of one. And we had it being like, let's say we're facing some way. um, And we had it be that they were going to be appearing at one o'clock if we're lucky. And we're recognizing at this point that like everything's very far away. You can't see shit. Like, not thumbing your gut knife to check if it's sharp. You know, you're like, who knows? But, and we had a little cow, like an antelope hunting blind, cow blind, looks like a cow set up. And our line was off, or they changed course. And all of a sudden, Carl's got one at what distance? I would say at that point, it was probably like
1: 150. Picking us, yeah, picking us off at 150. Yeah. Yeah. and, And most, you know, our attention had been focused. If you imagine looking at like 12 o'clock is where we're thinking we might see these Oryx. I was trying to make it a point to do like a 360 every few minutes because we are also seeing a lot of a lot fresh of sign in
0: there. Probably the most tracks we'd seen.
1: Yeah, and I was thinking like, we've got these this group that we've seen of three or four and who knows what else is in here. So I was trying to keep heads up with what's going on around us. Yeah, you us. had even said like, we're just going to all of a sudden have one staring at us Yeah, when we're sneaking in there. And, and what caught my attention, so again, if you're thinking 12 o'clock, I happen to be looking towards like, let's say 430 off over my right shoulder and spotted that sword-like horn immediately dropped down without any question in my mind about whether or not that was an oryx and i whispered to each guy individually i'm like do not move because that thing was dialed dialed in and it went from what i saw was the like the parallel of one horn and it turned and gave me the two horns (laughs) so i saw you know the the fact that the skull it's staring at is facing at us. And I never, I could not see the face at that point. I could just see these two. They kind of remind me like antennae yeah. off an insect. Um, and I could just see the tips of those two sword-like horns and could not see the face of the animal. And I'm just kind of like peeking up. So I tell the guys like, you know, don't move. I've got Steve on my left with the rifle. I've got Seth on my right. We're all kind of packed in behind this decoy. And, uh, I start trying to get the shooting sticks set up. I've been carrying around a set of shooting sticks because that's one lesson we've learned the hard way, you know, about trying to get steady from a standing position. You're always trying to work through all that vegetation. So my, my chief uh, responsibility this trip has been chasing Steve around with the, the shooting sticks. So they're at the ready. So I get the shooting sticks set up at a good height for Steve to be like in a kneeling position. He sneaks around behind me, peeks up over the top, and as we rise up you know i'm thinking there's probably like a 20% chance that the oryx is still there because there's been quite a bit of commotion right and
0: then he's like hey that cow's got a gun
1: yeah that <laughs> cow's got a gun sticking out of its back <laughs> so so yeah um you know i'm i'm thinking i know like wh- exactly where this thing is i don't initially relocate it but within a couple ticks there are two oryx trotting from left to right and at that point in order to gain like a good shooting lane we abandon the decoy we get up on our feet and we shifted to the right what do you think like 15 yards maybe yeah and we get this nice gap where the oryx are now stopped doing the oryx look back he did what he shouldn't have done yes he did did what he should not have done yeah stopped at 230 yards and stared yep the problem was though the shooting sticks were set for the kneeling the kneeling shot at that point. So we drop a couple of the legs. That still wasn't quite stable enough. We got the third leg out, got him ranged. Steve took his time. Blouch. Blouch. And the thing was, the thing that was interesting about that is, uh you know, I'm at ears plugged, I'm trying to do a good job of protecting my hair Yeah, head. that was that was annoying. And th- yeah, <laughs> you're asking me for a range with I'm my like, ears plugged. What's the range? What's the range? What's the range? Well, let me ask you this. And what, I turn back. And Carl's got his ears like extra plugged. <laughs> what, let me ask you this: What range are you zeroed on that
0: rifle? I don't know how big they are. Two hundred yards zero. Okay, I'm looking at that I, thing like there's no question. You don't need to worry about range. I Just shoot thought, that thing. Because the circum, me being a novice, yeah. oryx hunter, yeah, and not having sort of like a very fixed mental image of yeah. how big they are. Yep. And hearing all these stories of how big they are. Yes. Uh, I was like, if you had said
1: 350, I wouldn't have been shocked. Okay. That's good to know. And it's
0: a very disorienting...
1: Landscape. It's it's like
0: flat-ass desert with brush in it. There's an animal you don't know how big it is. Yep. You can see it from like the brisket up.
1: Yep. And I just was... You could have said 330. Yep. Well, so... My thought process in that situation, like in that instant, I was thinking, like, don't you, you're not worrying about adjusting anything, like that that animal in terms of where your, your point of aim would be. If you're zeroed at 200 ish, that animal's somewhere right in that ballpark. So I'm just yeah, expecting I would a shot. only be
0: a minute. I would be a minute low, and may, yeah, in hindsight, maybe, but no, that was the thing I wanted to know. And so I noticed your
1: your lips moving, <laughs> and I've got my ears like plugged with my fingertips and I unplug my ears you're saying range 228 you're like perfect and don't you know you, I imagine don't adjust anything right? didn't adjust Just anything aim dead on so I've got my ears like plug plugged like fingertips over those little ear flappers pushed way down in there and when you pulled that trigger the sound of the impact was what stands out in my mind it was such a distinctive whop and I, and I wasn't Exactly sure which of the two you might shoot at, the one that you shot was the one I expected, but I thought you might shoot at either one potentially. Mm-hmm. And they were close enough together that I saw one of them run away, so I wasn't certain like which, you know, what exactly had happened at that moment. But I definitely heard a very distinctive wop. Our, our buds who were back on the glass heard that too. You, heard I that. liked the wop. Yeah. And I liked that only one ran away. Yeah, and there was a there was a big cloud of dust too, like instantly. There was this plume of dust. I don't know if you saw that, but I did not see big the plume of big dust. brown plume of dust. And you know, we you were in the right mind space at that point because you're like, we need to get to where I can be ready for a follow up shot. And I was sitting there with a good line where there were a couple sort of like semi distinctive bushes lined up where I felt like we could we could keep a good line to get in on that thing. But we kind of split up a little bit worked our way into the area where we where we thought that oryx might be and you very quickly identified the location and that animal had not taken a single step from they the time right He went right down we did shoot him in the neck yes cuz it was hard to tell we were very uh you know, yeah i'm a little i'm didn't a little want, little trigger shy well I think, uh, was that the right word? Liberal with the follow up shots. <laughs> liberal. <laughs> I mean, the stories you hear, like, you, you know, they, uh, we heard another one that day. Yeah, we did. And that's heart. Later that day, yeah. we're talking to another Oryx hunter.
0: Um, he wasn't hunt right now, but he had hunted Oryx in the past and so told us another story. Yeah.
1: You want me to recount that? Yeah. The guy was talking about being out with his, his so called friend and, uh, knocking an Oryx down. That's right. They stopped and being friends over it. I, I don't blame <laughs> the guy, man. Um, and I'm sort of haunted by the situation with my buddy too, and I can I'll tell that very quickly as well. But the situation the guy told us was he shoots an oryx, the oryx is on the ground, they walk in and they're trying to determine whether or not a follow follow up shot is necessary, and his friend unexpectedly decides the best course of action is to throw a stick at the downed oryx. No, the guy wanted to shoot it. Yeah, he's he's like maybe we should take a follow up. And he's shot. like no, I don't, let's not take it's a follow up shot. It's dead. And instead he chucks a stick at the downed Oryx, at which point the Oryx jumps to its feet and runs to the horizon never never to be be seen seen again. again. And just real quick while we're on the topic, I've got one of my dearest hunting buddies, a guy named Ryan, who we were out on his off-range Oryx hunt and we worked hard, we suffered together, we earned a shot opportunity where he hit an Oryx, knocked it off its feet, and we were both so elated and so rookie in our Oryx experience That we're standing there, you know, just like giddy, looking at each other like, yeah, yeah. And the oryx is laying there. And the next thing you know, the thing kicks its feet back under itself and just gallops to the horizon. Never to be seen again. Never to be seen again. We went down there, found a couple little spots of blood. And that oryx, I mean, we followed it. Like you said, the tracking conditions, you can basically walk at a fast walk. And we followed it for miles up and over hill after hill, and it never even slowed down. So there, yeah, the, the uh, idea of being liberal with follow-up shots makes sense. And when I got around to where I could see what, what was the exit point of your shot, it was up at the base of the neck. So you'd made, a, you'd made a, a solid shot on that Oryx, and I do not believe that Oryx would have gone anywhere. But when I saw the hole at the base of its neck and the fact that you know the Oryx was still breathing a little bit... You could have, could have been stunned from yes, a blow and to the right, process. When I saw that hole on the neck... I just said shoot it again. And and we went back and forth, I think, three different times. We were like, Really? Like, shoot it again. Just just be safe. And that's that follow up shot you took, it didn't do a ton of meat extra meat damage. No, a shot of the neck. Yeah. And so I feel like A shot of the neck, then for a minute was scared that I just blew the horn off because I could, <laughs> I could-
0: <laughs> Carl told over it doesn't matter.
1: I did say that, and I stand, and I stand by that. Because <laughs> also I was like, man, one of those horns. Yeah, that was, one of, that was one of the most sickening experiences with, with my buddy Ryan, and I, I take responsibility for that because I should have just said, like, you know, the same thing I, I said to you is chamber around and just keep your crosshairs on that thing. And if there is any question in your mind about whether it may or may not get up, like if it blinks wrong, take a follow-up shot. We spoke to a guide
0: who expressed to us that the glory days of off-range oryx hunting in New Mexico are waning? That it's getting harder. You don't have the big ones around anymore, and it is like they're they're. I mean, you gotta think is it fair to say that they're kind of whittling away at them? I mean, you just read the numbers. There's a thousand fewer, and when we're only talking about four or five thousand, a thousand's a lot. But we're still over the objective, right? I'm not saying that we're not objective. I'm saying
3: that the good old days are waning. I mean, I, for one, I can't speak to the good old days because I, I wasn't fortunate enough to hunt at those times. But the um, the hunts that I've been fortunate to be on, you know, we've we've turned up oryx, and I can't tell you it's a lot of oryx. It's a little oryx. I don't know how to you know quantify that to past experiences in the 90s but i think you know um the the direction of of you know the way the population is being managed they want it to be at a lower target rate um but i i I think the hunting's good still you know i i would find it hard to believe that it's dwindling down to the expectations that we might have gotten from the individual
0: yeah well let's say you had two billion dollars And then all of a sudden you had $1 And I observed, man, you have uh, less money. You would then be like, but a billion is a lot. And I'm like, yes, but you have less. That's all I'm getting at. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying he seemed to think that it used to be like, wham, bam. Maybe that's not even true. There is like a real good old days problem that Hunter's suffer from right in general and i think you know I, i've and never that, it might have been as simple as like everyone remembers okay just me now i'm thinking back to the last turkey season in my mind all i did was call back and forth at hot gobblers how much did that happen <laughs> a couple times <laughs> yeah but in my head it's like dude right you, for, you know you forget about all that like the days nothing happens in your mind it's like turkey oh no, yeah it's great man
3: working hot working
0: you know So whatever, uh, it might just be his, you know, and he wouldn't be the first guy to tell you that things used to be good. Right. Yeah. I
3: mean, and you know, he spent a lot of time hunting in those good old days and I'm sure a lot of has changed since then, as far as tag allocation and pressure and those types of things that could be, you know, there could be many more contributing factors to, you know, maybe that, that dwindling down of the, of the experience.
2: And, and I've, I've never looked at those data, but you know, we do post harvest success data that includes cause so like, you'll have to report on this harvest and, you know, identify the sex of the animal that you killed. I don't think they'll ask you anything about the horns, although I can't recall, but they will ask you how many days did you hunt? So you could, I mean, from a quality of I, I'm not talking about necessarily from the number of animals in the population standpoint, But if that's a corollary to the quality of the hunting, I mean, you know, the good old days, you could look at those data and ask how you know, what percentage of people are being successful and how long is it taking them to be successful? Yeah. So that information exists. So you could find this all out. And the range on range hunts, uh, they do record the length of the horns on the animals. So you can see if there was a, yeah, you could see if there was a drift there. Right. So, you know, maybe it wouldn't tell you anything about off-range, although I think think the animals that you see on an off-range hunt, many of them also spend a lot of time on the range. Yeah. I don't think they have, I don't know what their home range sizes are. They don't divide each other up into, okay, you guys are off-range, we're on range. Right. I don't get a sense that there's like a really high level of, you know, fidelity to a particular area it's just like orcs show up in one place and if they don't get bumped they hang out around there for a while yeah but then they might just all take off walking and go you know 10 miles back onto the range or or wherever yeah i'm not like bad-mouthing the experience i mean we had interact well except for the day we got here and only went out in the afternoon we had
0: interactions and like opportunities yeah and I, I, i we even had an opportunity the day we got here Right at dark that we ran out of daylight. Oh yeah, we found one. Right, it was like you could have walked there. Anyways, right. multiple opportunities after that too. Yep. So, like, not bad mouthing it. I'm yeah. just I'm just
2: sharing a thing that a guy said and uh, take it for what it, take it for what it's worth. Yeah, and I, I yeah, was just agree. trying to yeah. sort of yeah, offer agree. the approach that if some you know that if if we're really interested in that question, you could find The, it. the information's publicly available. Yeah. So we had opportunities every day. Got one the
0: morning of our fourth day. You could say, this is going to sound like you're giving away something, but this is something you can find. Like The most basic internet search would reveal to you that you want to hunt within, I don't know, 10, 12 miles of the missile range across the northern and western sides. And And if you think I'm narrowing it down, I'm talking... Uh one hundred and eighty linear miles of a ten mile wide
2: stretch of ground. So Yeah it, plenty and, of place to hunt. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and the east side too, I mean, right? Seth, oh, wasn't yeah. there some a story somebody yeah.
4: reached out through Some guy sent me a screenshot of an on of Onyx. I had to like go on Onyx and kind of figure out where it was, but it was on the east side. Oh. He said look here if you're struggling to
0: Really? Yeah. Okay. So maybe there is 130, 260, 290, but 320. By looking at Onyx, 320 it- <laughs> linear miles of a 10-mile wide
4: strip. That's my hot tip. <laughs> by looking at Onyx, though, it seems that that east side, there's not as much
3: ground to hunt. Well, it seems to be a little bit more checkerboarded. Yeah. Um. But, you know, they've, they've seen them, you know, really far north, too. They've seen them, you know, south as well. So that 360 degrees around there, I think that's a... That's a really good. Assumption. Yeah, my hot
1: tip would be like five to seven miles around the entire perimeter of the missile range. You yeah, got the potential to bump into them.
0: And there is an enormous amount of BLM land. Yeah, there is no
1: need. Millions of acres. Yeah, there is no
0: need acres. to feel like you know you don't have spots. I mean, state BLM, plenty of space. Yep, that's right.
2: Another hot tip is they're pretty serious about that missile range boundary. So (laughs) having having Onyx, you know, or or some other mapping app to, uh, so so you're confident where it is. It's it's pretty well marked, but yeah, it's so bad that I leaned on it one time. I leaned on it and
0: and quickly withdrew my fingers, realizing that my fingers had wrapped around the barbed wire into it. <laughs> probably a photograph. And, and of you felt, I know. I was like, oh man, they're probably, like read, they're probably like reading my mind right now with some kind of contraption. But yeah, uh, and
2: of course there are some private in holdings around, some ranch in-holdings, yeah. know, in holdings, you know, and and amongst a lot of BLM and state lands, and you got to be careful about and those as well.
3: I, I think one of the biggest tips I can give to folks that may be lucky enough to draw that tag is not only do you get a four wheel drive vehicle. Oh yeah. You know, I mean, from but get it from tuned them, up. <laughs> get a tune up. You know, from a map, it looks like you can get from point A to point B very easily, but once you're there on the landscape, you'll quickly understand that you know time really erodes those roads, and a and a quick thunderstorm can really have a lasting impact. Yeah, on flash flood,
0: flooding is a serious issue. <laughs> Absolutely, especially this time of year in June, you got monsoons, yep. and they just like make the rivers turn into the roads turn into rivers. Right. These guys travel with um lots of water. 20 extra, 20 gallons of fuel and fuel cans, all your repair stuff, shovels and whatnot. Toe axes. Pickaxes. And then you do want to have like your, your camp gear and just keep your stuff in your truck
2: so you can roll from. Yeah. And I have an extra spare tire. Like I bring
4: two, two, spares. two spares, You have right? two spare two I have two spares. And he noted that he's running 10 ply Kevlar sidewall, sidewall tires. I've got those,
2: cre- those, uh, mesquite thorns will will puncture you. tires yep The sidewalls the right and tread side yep. like good solid tires are are a huge advantage yeah Mandatory. my buddy who
3: built that uh safari rack one time we were hunting and he popped a tire put the spare tire on a couple hundred down a couple hundred yards down the road he started hearing some air and sure enough he popped that t- that same tire that we just replaced so multiple spares spares. we were out of tires and we had to make a trip back into town to get those tires fixed i also
2: have an air compressor and so like a little
1: we've got two air
0: compressors
3: plug plug kits all of it so you you gotta gotta be be rigged
0: if you rig up like that if you rig up where you got a good baja truck and rig up with fuel water food
1: camp gear i got one more for you okay if we were to count up the number of Full coolers of ice that we've been hauling. Oh, like, yeah. That's what I was just thinking, Man, I forgot. It's I a mean, hundred. It's a hundred degrees in the we, daytime. We probably have at least half a dozen coolers with us. Some of them are giant. That we had hundreds of pounds. Like, at, we probably had three hundred
2: pounds of ice. I I, I had two fifty in my head. No, but yeah, I I think three hundred. I forgot that start. detail. Yeah, because like, you got a picture putting uh,
0: at the top end, you got a picture putting a 400, 450 hundred and fifty pound bowl parted out. And if you want to keep the hide or sweet that you need to be able to ice that thing because you're a long way from any kind of town and you're a long way from replenishing ice. And so you need
2: massive amounts of ice and coolers because yeah. it's a hundred degrees. It really, you're right. It's, it's, I mean, over a lot of this hunt, it was over a hundred degrees in the middle of the day. So if you shoot one at 11 o'clock, clock's ticking you you got to get that thing cooled down yeah
0: you're just not gonna be like if you got to carry it a mile or two
2: and then like get it in your truck and then drive into you're screwed right like the the bull you killed you know we uh jeremy and i again had hung back to the spot you guys went in and killed him and then you know normally it would have like you guys took a couple quick photos i would imagine and then you know till we were able to make our way there, you guys were, you know, in the middle of it, of getting that animal apart. And, you know, I maybe would have been a little offended in some situations. Like, oh, I would have liked to get a picture (laughs) with the animal. Like, not like that thought never (laughs) crossed my mind. Like, no, the, you just got to get to work and get that thing taken down. It's alarmingly warm. yeah.
4: Yeah. I mean, those quarters were off and it's like, put them in the bag. Let's go. Yep. Both, let's take and a it, load. And, as Carl was gutting that thing, just the the stomach like second by second it seemed like was just yeah, growing. Ballooning. Yeah. Yeah, like in my hands it was as I'm huge. that thing up. yeah
3: was By is, the time. You so gotta, Jeremy
0: like, had a cape spoil in two hours, right?
3: Yeah. The the uh, Oryx I was lucky enough to harvest in August within a couple hours and it was nowhere near as hot as it was when we were able the to harvest The hair was slipping. Yours. Yeah, the hair was already slipping. You know, I I took the cape home and I I wanted to donate it to a taxidermist and I called him and he said do me a favor and go ahead and take a clump of that hair and just give it a pull and I pulled it and I was I was pulling off handfuls of hair off that cape within, like he, he within knew. hours oh yeah he was like how long when did you ki- when did you kill it I said about three thirty it was you know four five thirty six somewhere around there he said go ahead and just pull some hair I pulled it and he's like is it coming off I said yeah he's like
0: throw it away we took a giant cooler. Put 60 pounds of ice in the cooler and then put down a contractor bag and then laid the hide meat side down, Yep. And count, just keep count, kind of loosely folded to get it cool. Shifting it around to get all and that Packs And packed all, in. and like, you know, you hear a lot of people say, oh, I hesitate to get into this. You hear people say like, don't put meat in water. And sure, when, in the perfect world, like if you go into a slaughterhouse, they don't put well they cool they cool poultry as we now know in ice baths but um a per like no one in a slaughterhouse puts meat in the water to cool it off but i've found that in really hot places hunters don't hesitate to put meat in the water because wet meat is better than rotten meat when i hunt in hawaii everything goes into ice water they take a shitload of ice put water on it submerge it cuz it's like well
3: i don't like it when it's
0: rotten <laughs> I'll, I'll take wet.
3: <laughs> I'm just thinking of us loading our water bottles with ice. I mean, you would fill an allergen container full of ice, and by the time that sucker hit your lips, it was already all melted.
0: Yeah. Uh, and the meat's highly regarded. Oh, man. Yeah. It really. seems like, uni- you know, a lot of these are good, but everybody says they're no good. Like, people be like, oh, big buck mule deer. I love them. My wife likes them. Everybody likes them. But some people like to shit talk them. But uh, Oryx, everybody says it's good. Oryx, Axis deer, Seek deer everybody says it's good
2: yeah it's, it would be like a really common reaction like if you ask a non-hunter in new mexico like oh do you like wild game meat they'd be like i like oryx <laughs> <laughs> it i mean that's it's got that good of a reputation yeah. i think it's more i think it's just really mild yeah yeah I, I wouldn't say i mean it
1: i'm glad you said that because i would not say it's my favorite for that very reason too mild I feel like it's a little bit too mild. I think that's why I like Mule Deer. I like a you know, I don't mind
0: a robust flavor.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean I, I You
0: like, know how people I like, like to say You know how people like to talk about wild game being organic? Yeah. And most the, the vast majority of wild game eaten in this country is not organic. Not right? not even close. Um orcs. No way they're not organic.
1: What would be a thing that would make them not organic? If they got into, maybe if they got into some of that, one of those cattle spots where there's some kind of supplemental out there, that could be, but I I agree with your point, but there there may be the occasional exception. And the ones that are on the missile range, probably probably almost to the individual, because they don't graze any livestock on the range, right?
2: Not to my knowledge. So organic? Yep. Your duck? Your mallard? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Your
0: tail, Probably not. But these are organic works. Yep. Certified. Yep. Uh, What else, man?
1: Fill me in. Anything we missed? Well, I think on that logistics piece, you know, we 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 talked a lot about ice just now, um, and the fact that, you know, I think this kind of hunt really lends itself to teamwork in terms of the hunt itself, but also logistically. I think going out into that country with a single vehicle. You know, I would put like, I would put like an extra vehicle as, in the mix as a valuable That's piece of smart. equipment because if you get buried, like we've all got tow straps, and there's just peace of mind. Like some of the stuff that we were driving over, there were some places I thought I thought that one night that Jeremy's truck was going to tip over in that in that washout, man. And if something like that happens, and you're way the heck back in here, and there's some places where phone service is spotty, and you cannot you cannot exaggerate the vastness of the landscape. So having an extra vehicle, I think is really smart. And then also, you know, just having another person in case something goes wrong. You know, there's snakes, it's hot. There's all kinds of stuff that, you know, might happen from a health and well-being perspective. So I would suggest not doing the hunt solo. That'd be my, my, my other piece of advice. Yeah, but if you
0: rigged up properly, two rigs, couple buddies, outfit them all the way, you could... Like we talk about this thing being 130 miles north south, you could finagle your way just on washed out two tracks and whatnot. Finagle your way for days, mm-hmm. for sitting sure. up on top of the topper or
2: whatever the hell you're doing, stopping at every high spot to look, and just spend your time. Yep. It and it might be worth noting, you know, somebody who has no idea what they'd be, you know, what this landscape is like and the vegetation like. If you bring a brand new sixty thousand dollar pickup <laughs> down here, you're gonna get you, some pinstripes. You may end up sending Steve an angry email. Yeah, you get Arizona Arizona pinstripes. You, you just you get scratches. It's it's real good to have a capable truck that's already broken, broken in, broken in, and got a few dents and scratches because you're gonna. Yeah, probably... you guys
0: took offense when I called them Arizona pinstripes. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, the best thing I heard lately is what was the what was the rifle we were talking about the other day? The, those old Remington oh the Amish. slide those <laughs>
4: Remington
2: <laughs> pump, pump those Remington
4: slide action rifles. What were those? The Amish machine guns. Yeah, yeah they're like seven. <laughs> were they
2: seven sixties and 7600s yeah.
4: Dude, I remember guys
0: had like if you were when we were kids, man, like you know yet you like a lot of people like your hand me down was a thirty thirty, right or whatever. Yeah. But the thing to get was if you could get one of those Remington slide action rifles, yeah, and then get the look through mount. Oh yeah. So you had the iron sight, you oh, had like a buckhorn yeah. sight on the bottom and then you're, oh, you're right. and then like these like plastic mounts you could lurk through. And then you had your scope on top. So it was like a brush gun and a
2: field gun. Yeah. Yep. I, I grew Amish up. a machine gun, man. You get a
4: lot <laughs> of rounds down range quick.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Seth and I both grew up in Pennsylvania and I don't think it's an exaggeration at all <laughs> to say like in in the heyday of our deer camp when there were 20 plus guys there, at least 50% of the rifles that people were hunting with were slide pump action remington rifles
4: and the other 50 were were lever action
2: 30 30s yeah i mean you know some guys were starting to hunt with bolt guns you know, i was but- old school i had third i had a model 94 32 special with a peep
0: sight nice and it had that reducer so as it, you always had to carry that reducer around in your pocket you know yeah and um in the morning you had to take the reducer out because it was too dark but then once it got good and light, you'd kind of like screw that reducer in because it'd give you the <laughs> extra accuracy. Then it started getting dusk and you had to take the reducer back out. <laughs> yeah. But I put some doughs down that thing. That 32- I put down a buck or two. That 32 win special was a good one. Man, I was so stupid I sold that thing and it was given to me. There's this guy, one of my one of my mentors as a kid, was this guy, Eugene Groters, and he had he was in his 80s. He had a gun for every- he, he made a point to have a gun for every year he'd been alive. And he kept them in these big overhead racks in his house. So his house was like- the ceiling, instead of a drop ceiling, it looked like a, like what, his like den area, it looked like a drop ceiling of firearms, 83 of them or whatever up there. And super generous, nice dude. Um, I remember he used to have, like, he was a big admirer of, these are all World War II guys, you know, but he was a big admirer of like centerfolds from, uh, you know, like old, whatever the hell, Playboy precursors were, Tiger Magazine or whatever, you know, like And he had always decorated everything with these. And I remember being a little kid and and, and wandering around there, you know, like, man, am I supposed to look at this? Or I can't really help not look at it. Oh, my dad's going to catch me looking. Anyways, he had all these damn guns. And he was such a nice dude, the way he, instead, but but, uh, he gave me a Model 94. And instead of him saying, like, I just want to give this to you as a nice guy, he presented it to me. To be like, I got to counting and realized that I have an extra gun. Oh man, what a guy. And I like to have one for every year I'm alive, so please take this. And positioned it to me as a kid that I was doing him a favor by taking that gun. That's such a cool thing. And then I took it, shot a bunch of deer with it. I remember going out in the yard and someone filled a milk jug up full of water and put it out there at 75 yards and hit the milk jug full of water. And it was like, that was like the test, you know? And I was like, it's a hunting gun. And then later, um, sold it to a dude that had a, uh, uh, wood stove, a gun shop, wood stove shop, sold it to him and he gave me 350 bucks for it. Cause I wanted a trap and gun of those, uh, 22, 22 20 gauge over and unders. Oh, savage. Yeah. Model 24. yeah. And then later realized that I was grossly underpaid. Yeah. For that model 94. Yeah my fault. Anytime you sell a gun later on, I'm like, dude, what was I thinking? Because <laughs> you forget what it's like to be out of money. And then you just think you're being
3: stupid. Oh, I'd like to have that thing back. I got something we forgot. Go ahead. Well, it's still fresh in my mind. Carl mentioned snake. I just happened to look across <laughs> the table at Seth. Had a, I don't want to take your story from you.
4: Yeah, be careful where you step out here.
3: <laughs> we, uh, well stated.
4: pulled up. I think we were just pulled up to a glassing spot. Yeah, pulled and up to a glassing spot. I swung the door open and stepped out and walked over. To... Between a bush and the door. Between a bush and the doors, <laughs> not very much space. And I walked over to Jeremy's truck that was in front of us, and we, you know we exchanged words and stuff, and I turned around to get back in Mike's truck, and right where I had stepped out is a coiled-up rattlesnake. In a little dish. In a little dish. Oh, it was like an old. I, I think it was like an old cattle track or something that just, yeah. you know, got washed out and just made this perfect little dish. And uh, yeah, I stepped inches from it.
2: I mean, it really would be difficult to step closer to the snake without actually stepping. He didn't in give it. a shit, though. No.
4: And uh, I, we went, I got
0: a video. Did you? I put a video on my, uh, if you go to Instagram, at Steven Rennella. Yeah. Is there one? At Signs Signs underscore West. There'll be photos of it. You should change your thing to Seth so people can find you, or at the Flip Flop flesher.
4: Yeah, I don't know. Or at Seth. I gotta talk to someone. Who would know? I would. would, Who would know how to look you up? I want to talk to. We can just type in my name and it comes up. Oh. I want to talk to someone about that. About like if that makes a difference by changing your.
0: Yeah, because Seth takes Seth's a photographer takes beautiful photographs. Thank you. You go on there and follow him at Signs West. Signs. Underscore West. Yeah, so it's not his name. It's just signs West. Yep. Underscore. Maybe it needs updated. I think you need to update it. Um. One last thing. Uh, another good Sethism is uh, tagged out. I'm gonna call this. We should call this episode tug out. Because <laughs> rather than saying we tagged out, Seth would say we tug out.
2: Yep. And scun it. <laughs> I think that's a Pennsylvania thing
4: that's where i came up with, yeah. that's where i heard it well yeah.
2: tug out tug out <laughs> yeah <laughs> we're all tug out like i don't know that sounds that sounds perfectly normal to me <laughs> all tug out love it all
3: tug out okay jeremy thank you well tell people how to find uh how do people go if they want to look at the work you guys do well, you can go to the National Wildlife Federation or nwf.org, you know, from there. You and that's can, a and friendly
0: conservation group. Absolutely, oh, yeah. You know, that's the National
3: yeah. Wildlife Federation focuses on a lot of conservation issues, but one of the things that I and a lot of my, you know, team prides ourselves in doing are, you know, conservation that's related to sportsmen and sportswomen, you know, advocating for things like Land Water Conservation Fund, the Great American Outdoors Act, you know, access to for sportsmen and sportswomen of public lands, a lot of those issues that we, uh, hear a lot about on this show, you know, National Wildlife Federation. And, you know, the team that I'm fortunate enough to work with, you know, really does a a great job of, you know, working hard to protect these, these traditions that we, you know, value that allows us to be here talking about, you know, and so folks want to learn more about, as you know, the National Wildlife Federation itself is a nonprofit, but we're also made up of state affiliates. So, you know, if you're in New Mexico and you draw an Oryx tag and you want a little bit of more information, you can always go check out the New Mexico Wildlife Federation. But, you know, go to nwf.org and you can really start to see kind of all the different angles that we focus on in conservation and kind of start to, you know, learn from there and kind of really divulge into the many different state, you know, affiliates that are also focused on more specific issues.
0: Yeah. When I say a hunting friendly conservation group, that's like a thing that I I think is really important for you to understand because when you support hunting friendly conservation groups, you're in, you're getting in bed with people who want there to be a they're, they want there to be great habitat. They want there to be a lot of wildlife and they support your right to use that wildlife when there is enough of it to warrant some consumption. And other conservation groups that might really support the habitat and support the wildlife and, uh, want to starve you out. And so I think always lend your support to the, the hunting friendly ones. Cause if not, you're just you're you're helping the long game but screwing the screwing yourself in the short term that's my two cents you ain't Mike
1: he's got nothing to say I got nothing to say <laughs> any concluders Carl uh, I would just like to express gratitude to my two buddies um, you know these guys taking time off of work and beating the crap out of their vehicles and you know, cooking some incredible food and, you know, just like you, I think you guys both have an appreciation, Steve and Seth, at this point for. They rolled well, out the red carpet. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, but they rolled out the red chili sauce. And, man. and <laughs> the point I want to make is it's not because, <laughs> it's not because, it's not because you were the guy coming to hunt, but that's just the kind of guys the, they are. And if, if you were any other old Joe, buddy of mine coming from out of state to go on an oryx hunt they would have gotten the same kind of treatment because i'm lucky enough to have friends like these two so great appreciate you guys yeah jeremy and mike thank you
0: yeah thanks a lot guys And
2: anyone draws an oryx tag jeremy mike be happy to take you out (laughs) (laughs) no i mean you guys don't even worry about bringing the truck you guys are are (laughs) thoroughly welcome this was this was an absolutely enjoyable five days of just bombing around with with people that you know really feel like old friends at this point and so absolutely really an authentic experience and just a heck of a lot of fun so i you know i appreciate the time together this was great yeah
4: thanks
2: guys
5: First Light has always made the world's best base layers. They are warm, breathable, silent, and odor resistant. But the women's fit in the gear weren't meeting our demands. So we went back to the beginning and rebuilt everything. Reengineering the gear with the most dedicated female hunters in mind, First Light modernized the fit and added more sizes, colors, and camo patterns. I personally have been testing the women's gear over the last couple of years uh, from the mountains in Idaho to the plains in Nebraska, and I feel like the fit especially has landed in a much better spot. It's more true to size. It's not as tight and binding in certain areas like a lot of women's fit. Uh, All of the pieces, to me, got an all-around upgrade. It's awesome to see. So for yourself or as a gift, this Mother's Day, pick up First Light's new women's merino wool and get free shipping on all orders containing women's gear. Available now at F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E dot com.